It's October 5th, 2020, and this is Diz Podopolis, where we talk about Disneyland, Walt Disney World, and everything in between. A dream is a wish your heart makes when you're fast asleep in dreams. Well, thank you for joining us on another episode of Diz Podopolis. And today is we are going to be uh, presenting to you episode number 38. Where it's so far kind of a Disney Plus lodge of fee so far. Oh, we've been doing a lot of Disney Plus, haven't we? Um, yeah, because to well, here it's just not it's just not that much. Well, no, just not a whole lot going on right now, and that's just going to be the way it is for a while. Just for a little bit, but you know, hey, we'll have fun with Disney Plus in the meantime. Yes, we will. We will, and we are. And I'm glad, in a little tiny way, I'm glad that um, I get to relive some of these movies that I haven't watched in years and years and years. And of course, you know, we're going to be talking about one of those movies tonight. And it was Fiona's Choice. A lot of the times it's Fiona's Choice. <laughs> I've been wishing to see this movie for like a couple of months. Yes. Fiona, what did you choose? Yeah, one movie you can always mention. That Ryan mentions a lot? Yeah. Okay, and it is? 20,000 Links Under the Sea. Cue music. (laughs) About the flapping fish and the girls I've loved On nights like this with the moon above A whale of a tale and it's all true I swear by my tattoo There was Mermaid Minnie Met her down in Madagascar She would kiss me Anytime that I would ask her We totally forgot to introduce ourselves Oh we did! We totally forgot to introduce ourselves Fiona, yeah, okay, so I am Colleen, so thanks for joining us. And Fiona, why don't you introduce yourselves? Yourselves, yourself. If the first talk is going to be about food, I'm going to go back to being gay all hungry. Oh, no. All right. Ryan, you want to say hi to everybody out there? Yeah, I can introduce myself, too. (laughs) 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 How's it going? Thank you for joining us. We're glad you tuned in. Uh, Welcome to my mom and Aunt Dolores. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks for joining us tonight. And since this is Fiona's Choice, um, you want to just jump into the question, or do we need to really reveal our lives to everybody once again? Well, well, today, well, you know, today with this distant voice, this voice right Right here, I've been starring, for plus, I've been starring with the Disney Afternoon cartoons. Eh. Oh, I know what voice you're trying to do. And my first choice, um, I'm I'm Tummy Bear from the Gummy Bears. (laughs) So, she has been watching all of the Gummy Bear episodes on Disney Plus because she knows that, Ryan, you're a big fan of that show. Yes. 
gummy bears bouncing here and there and everywhere. Better stop, we're going to violate copyright or something, I'm sure. Grateful and friendly with stories to share. All through the forest they sing out in chorus, marching along as their song fills the air. the gummy bears before and um my brother too very much uh, liked the gummy bears i think he watched it at his friend's house uh and because we didn't have cable but uh yeah i know we've mentioned that the boat ride that was across from yeah, the matterhorn that's pretty much everything that's that's being said about with the gummy bears boat ride the boat ride yeah I, you you and derek went on that ride right we were so excited for that ride. <laughs> <laughs> i cannot even tell you we were driving everybody crazy i think that day trying to get on yes. that <laughs> motorboat ride and everybody's like why do you want to go on that ride because it's gummy glenn <laughs> sad but true and we loved every minute of it all of those plywood cutouts that <laughs> disney spared every expense <laughs> that's for sure but sadly yet again with my experiences i got i got caught up i got caught by the tv police aka elias Oh, yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, Elias was a, um, not, I don't know what you would say. Elias was kind of like questioning Fiona's choice of television uh, watching. And, and, and it's like, oh, I What's thought the he, question? <laughs> I, I thought he called it a five-year-old show because he thought I was getting too obsessed with it. Oh, well, you know, he's, he's. Elias is on the verge of well, he is in middle school right now, but you know, so there's that little middle He's at school. At the age of in. not believing, as they would say, <laughs> the knobs and broomsticks. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, or I think he's just in the mood where he's himself with YouTube. It's pretty, pretty premier right here. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, there were a lot of familiar voice acting in that show. Oh yeah. Do you remember some of the voices or some yeah, of the voice so actors? Yeah. So Tommy Bear, Lorna. Lorenzo Music. Lorenzo Music, who he's actually well known off topic here. He was well known for the original voice of Garfield. Oh, cool. And, yeah, you can really hear it. And what I never seen. And he. Okay, I'll get here. We're doing a gummy bear review for y'all. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm good. I'm going down the gummy bear trail okay, he, with him. He voiced, he voiced a, a animated. Um, um, the, Peter, Peter from Ghostbusters. Oh, Peter Vinkner. Yeah, there was an animated series on Ghostbusters. Yeah, I remember that series. I watched it. Yeah, and this, in this way, she was well known for for some Disney voices. June, June, June Foray. June Foray. She passed away just a little while ago. Yeah, and she would have been like one hundred and two if she still be alive. Yeah, she she was a. And, and when dad said, oh, zombie bear sounds like Tigger, and it's it's Paul Witchell. It was Tigger. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> but where are you going, the gummy bear? I, like, I, I, I think I just, I, I stopped on season one since uh, it felt like my siblings were getting annoyed by the, by the show. I think it was when 
they were about to meet their other arrivals. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, sometimes we don't get to watch what we want to watch all the time. I mean, it's like, if they rebooted that show, it could be Disney Junior. Yeah, I think it would definitely be a Disney Junior show, for sure. Yeah, I think probably. But I still enjoyed it. And I still enjoyed it. There you well, go. Well, yeah, th- yeah, and back then, you, you there wasn't as much on, honestly. So. I mean, if anyone can quote as the 1980s, oh, that was the big period of the kitty cartoons. But they started doing a lot more. A well, lot like more. My Little Pony, uh-huh. Care Bears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Smurfs. G- Jifty. <laughs> but the motorboat ride we were talking about, too, back in, they had like kind of like a Disney afternoon period at Disneyland where they were putting in a lot of Disney afternoon things. And they took the gummy bears and put them into the motorboats. And they were kind of just card- their plywood cutouts, paintings of <laughs> card- gummy board. bears. All, I, all through the motorboat ride, which is where, which is across from uh, the Matterhorn right now. It's just kind of a little pond area now, but it used to have motorboats going through it, kind of like Autopia, but for water. And really slow. Mm, yes, it was so slow. Uh, motorboats on tracks, yeah. So. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty um, short too. It wasn't. Yeah, it just kind of like went out, went around, and then came back. Girls and boys, you did not miss a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, everything can be saved on all this can be saved on YouTube. There you go. You betcha. You can. You can go watch it on YouTube. I've watched it on YouTube. <laughs> I've relived the memories. <laughs> Yay! Okay. Are we ready for our, our question tonight? Uh yes. Okay, and I'm gonna preface this with Speaking it, of gumminess. Oh gumminess. So in the movie Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. Um, they are, the way the people on the submarine feed themselves is they gather everything from the sea. So there are some things that they are eating and not really eating in the movie, but some things that they are, um, they could be eating it. They, yeah. They would eat that we wouldn't necessarily eat today because of certain laws <laughs> that have been put out there. So if you hear something, you're like, what? We don't need that. You're right. We don't. <laughs> because we need it. There's, there's the Protection Act for those animals. But remember, this is 1868, so they don't have those Protection Acts at that point. And I don't think it was, a lot of these weren't an issue until there was overfishing. I know there was overfishing like in the 1890s and periods like that, but we're a little further away from that at this point. All right. But if you watch it, they were trying to do a form of sustainable farming in a way. There's like yeah. a, there's kind of an ecology overlay mm-hmm. to there this. Is. Like one of the themes of of this book really is ecology and and thinking. And I and that's I think that they are, I think um, Jules Verne was trying to was very forward thinking because it's one of the first books where that you really have an ecology theme to it. Um, and, and so, uh, um, yes, they are eating some odd things, but they were doing it at, in a way that was sustainable now. And as we're looking at it, you would not eat what they're eating. You would think, oh my gosh, what the, they're, <laughs> this is awful. <laughs> but, um, um, yeah. they they were looking at trying to farm the sea in a sustainable way. Yeah. They, yeah, they had developed, um, a system. Definitely mm-hmm. of catching and release and uh, making sure there was a certain things. But the I think the only thing that would kind of really set you off was the sea turtles. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. That obviously that's become an issue. And quote unquote ocean crickets. Ocean crickets? What are the, the ocean lobsters? Crickets? Lobsters, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Yeah, the sea turtles are disturbing, you know, like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the but they don't actually kill them for the movie. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> no. All right, Fiona. Uh, they, you... ne- they never had straws back back in the 1800s. They didn't have straws. They made paper ones. I'm wondering when they developed the paper straw. I mean, yeah, but with the Save the Turtles quote. Oh, yeah, like Save the Turtles. Which I never heard straws. of that before. All right, so Fiona, why don't you start this off for us? Because I got to see where you're where you're leaning with this question. So why don't you present the question okay. and then tell us if where you're you going? If you can imagine, it. if oh, if it's like oh, an animals can be in Candyland, or if for 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 to be on the Disney side in in Sugar Rush, what what type of fla- flavors would they be? Okay. And, and that idea was given by my my mil- milkshake milkshake dra- drawings that I've been that I've been trying to accomplish. Okay, so what Fiona's talking about is Fiona developed, and we may have talked about this earlier, like last December time. She developed a Christmas card that all the princesses had special milkshakes in honor of them. Because they're from Oh My Disney, so whatever can happen to them. Right. Okay, so why don't you give us an example of what you're thinking? Like, oh, oh, and and I, I, I thought we had some mentioning, so we could explain the one that we, Ivan, animals. Like, oh, the gorilla can taste like black forest cake, or okay. a, a chicken can taste like candy corn. Okay, so you're talking about Ivan from the one and only Ivan. Yeah. Okay. So it, yeah, so it like or, it'd be like you would go to a restaurant and you'd have um, a meal named after you, or a milkshake or a dessert. Yeah, that that that's kind of that basic basic theme. Oh, okay, cool. Or an elephant can be you know moose. I think and it's like oh, I just answered all those questions for I just answered my my question for you. Uh huh. So why don't you go first, Fiona? Even though you've given us so many examples already. Okay, I'm going to try to focus on the sea turtles and lobsters. Okay. Oh, so you're taking two? Yeah. All right. <laughs> go for it. I'm thinking the sea turtles could be like caramel apple with nuts. Caramel apple with nuts. That sounds really good. So you're, I see you're bringing in the green. And the brown. The apple. And then the... Caramel for the brown. Yeah. Okay. I think the lobsters could could be like a like a gooey um, cherry cherry mousse. Okay. Or uh, what what are what are red flavors would there be? Um. There's licorice, cherry, strawberry. Maybe licorice because they're kind of scaly. Okay. What are sea animals? Were in- okay. You want me to do a sea animal? Yeah, I think this is kind of a shortest, shortest for me. Okay, so I'm gonna pick pick a starfish because it was kind of a little different than I what I was thinking, but um, I kind of I kind of think this is kind of cute where you're going with this. Okay, so I'm gonna do a starfish, and a lot of times I think a starfish is having like a red or orange color to it, so I want to have like an orange marmalade, 
And then for me, because they kind of have that hard shell with the pricklies, I'm going to go with like a sour lemon zest. And then, because um, they're like always in the sand, I'm going to go with like a vanilla ice cream with graham cracker sprinkles. How's that sound? Yes. Yeah, so it's like it's like <laughs> jelly uh, ice cream with jelly on top. Uh-huh. I think you're being like the waitress right here. Am I being the waitress? Awesome. Yeah, you have your pencil and pad. Right. Well, I got to get my thoughts down. Goodness gracious. <laughs> and I'm trying to think of something that has like, because um, you got you to gotta have a star, right? So maybe cut that out of like um, white chocolate. Yeah. Or, it, could yeah. Be a, it could be like a white chocolate um, or like, molded. Or like vanilla starfish. Cake, cake custard. All right, Ryan. Which sea animal are you going with? (laughs) I'm going to do a sea cucumber. Oh, okay. Cool. Okay. Yeah. And it's going to be cucumber ice cream with a hint of lime and a hint of mint. Ooh, excelente. I'm hanging out with you. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be the milkshake, you know? And so you also have like a little lime wedge and that goes on the side of it and the little mint sprig in it too so it's like well decorated milkshake awesome yeah refreshing and tasty for the summer yeah see I, i'm envisioning this like cucumber ice cream taking like tasting like a green tea ice cream like a japanese mm-hmm. green tea something like that yeah something like that yeah yeah but just a little bit of citrus to it and a little bit of mint so it is kind of like a It'd be like a very tea-like, mm-hmm. tea-like milkshake. Yeah, and I forgot the shell. My last animal. I was I was gonna say a seal. Uh-huh. I think they could be like, like, like a deep, maybe like a deep cappuccino or a, or like a blackberry jello. Okay. All right. So if you guys can think of any like really cool like milkshakes or desserts that are inspired by the sea. But my- hey, one yes. more thing. Oh, How about thing. a clownfish? I, I had this in mind. I, I, it's the sorbet popsicle I was getting in mind. Oh, okay. So it was, it was the, it was like a yellow icing. It, it, it was like, I mean, orange, orange fr- frozen ice, icing with like the white cream inside what were those the, oh the orange sickles orange sickles i love dream sickles orange dream oh, sickles I love those they things. could be like dream sickles mm-hmm. and since there's a little bit of you know like kind of black on there you could do like dark chocolate swirled into it the dream sickle. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. a little bit of dark chocolate mm. <laughs> yeah i'm there i'm good <laughs> like you lined the glass with it so you can see like the little lines going up and down the glass so it's just you know a hint of dark chocolate <laughs> as we get clownfish dreamsicles back at the circus find your happy place everyone that's right oh yeah for sure so if you have an idea, you can email us at comments at dispodopolis.com. We'd love to hear them. And and yes, we and yes, that explains as this as being the gummy people. The gummy people. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Alright, Fiona. You ready to discuss twenty thousand leagues under the sea? Yeah. Alright, let's do it.
Now it's time to head way out west for a little patch of heaven. I know a place pretty as pie Where the river bend hits up with the end of the sky it's left in Nebraska and over a crest On a little patch of heaven way out west Everything's green, know what I mean? Well, tonight on Dispodopolis, we are going to be talking about one of Ryan's all-time favorite movies, live-action movies, that was uh, produced by Disney, and that is 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> saw it and I sat down with her and we watched it together and I tell you I cannot remember the last time I saw this it's been at least I want to say 25 to 30 years since I've seen this movie oh wow yeah wow yeah really long really long I I, I it's even probably older than that I I know it wasn't since I, I wasn't a teenager I wasn't an adult <laughs> Uh, and I don't know why I stayed away from it. Um, I, have, I have no reason. I have no reason at all. Other than I guess it just wasn't really available, wasn't there. And we watched it because it was on Disney+. Plus. And wishing I had seen it, um, been watching it since you know my childhood. Definitely a great movie. Oh, it's spectacular. <laughs> I love this film. I think it still holds up to today. It does. I think it does, too. In, in, in an odd way... It, and even when Jeff was watching it with us, he's like, this was 1954? I mean, like, the filming looks it looks so pop and, and, and clear. Yes. A little bit. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah, they used a special, um, they did the CinemaScope. So it was the first time that they had used CinemaScope and, and definitely a big, wide, bright screen for it, for sure. I mean, my mm -hmm. perspective for, for these seeing this film, I... Yeah, yes, since it's themed to the sea, it would have been perfect if we watched it at, at our new condo. But I'm like, with Dis Disney Plus, with my siblings, all they just want to do is watch cartoons. Oh, they they watch some of the uh, morning shows like Phineas and Ferb and Big City Greens. Well, well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also been amazing how many of the, the full-length animation features ADS want to watch. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, yeah. Yeah? Okay. All right, so I kind of wanted to start this conversation tonight talking about Jules Verne. Like, who's Jules Verne? Um, the kids don't really read their books anymore in school, uh, I, which is too bad, actually, because this kind of spawned a whole generation and multiple generations going through, like, the whole huge science fiction and thinking outside the box and really reinventing the world. 
And it's kind of what Jules Verne and H.G. Wells did. They gave us um, these incredible imaginations and thinking of these really bizarre vehicles and ways to travel. And you, you just, it's great imagination stuff. And I know it might seem outdated because, well, we actually can do those things now, but it's great to look back and see how they thought that it would come about. I mean, they were right in some areas, wrong in other areas. We still haven't gone to the center of the earth and that's not going to happen ever, probably. But, uh, but, but, but what happened to the bathe? The bathosphere? The bathosphere by, developed by Willem Babe. Okay, so what Fiona is talking about is she is talking about um, a kind of like a submergible ball that uh, was created in 1934 by William Beebe and Otis Barton. So it was a big steel ball with gla uh, glass windows, I'm assuming glass windows, and they could dive deep into the ocean. They went 923 meters down. There you go. So, so that was possible of the the deep the deep glaciers, like glaciers. Is that what they did with them? Well, yeah. Okay. So we also, what you guys need to know is we're gonna get a little aqua science tonight because Fiona is taking aqua science in high school this year, so she's learning about the history of it. So take, because theming to this episode is gonna be like it's gonna be like about different ways to travel, very deep undersea. Yes. So uh, Jules Verne was um, supposed to be a lawyer when he grew up, but that wasn't the choice <laughs> that he wanted. That was what his father wanted him to do. And he actually fell in love with the rented word, and he began writing plays when he was a secretary for the theater. Lorique, I'm guessing is how you say it. He's French, so and I didn't take French in high school. Um, Ryan, what language did you take in high school? Spanish. Okay, you're not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so, but in 1857, uh, he got married. I do speak a tiny bit of French, though, okay. from living from this from living in Belgium for the summer. It's a bilingual country. They speak uh, Dutch and French. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you speak Dutch then too? Um, a little. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Cool. Da. <laughs> That will not be on the test later. Yeah. I can just make up the words with some languages. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Freya Jaka. Freya Jaka. Freya Jaka. Oh. I can't remember where it goes. That's okay. That, that's Keep on going. <laughs> Back to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. <laughs> So, Instead of our awful, awful language <laughs> skills. <laughs> We're just like teaching you how bad we are. Speaking other of our languages. Oh. So um, in 1857, he got married and uh, with that became responsibility. So he took a job as a broker in the Paris stock market. And But he continued to write on the side. In 1862, he ran into um, a man that would become his mentor. Pierre Jules Hitzel and talked him into publishing his first book, Five Weeks in a Balloon. Uh, it was actually an international success right out of the box. So Hetzel and Verne started a partnership. And I thought this was really interesting is uh, 
Jules Verne tried to go down the path of dystop dystopian society, and Hetzel's like, mm, no. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to publish that. So Verne went back to work, kind of um, going down the same vein for quite a few years in his scientific adventure novels. He would land up writing about 60 works in his popular series, Voyage Extraordinaire, over the next 40 years. And like we spoke about before, Jules Verne really kicked off the imagination of generations to come after him. And if you look, it's kind of amazing um, the great scientific birth that came in the 1800s. And this sparks off of that for sure, because you're seeing like steam engines being created. You're seeing other industry kind of coming in. You know, they're using hydro power, that sort of, I mean, they've been using hydropower for a long time, but now they're really stepping it up and seeing how they can use it in industry in big fashion. He, uh, his first like big novel after, uh, Five Weeks in a Balloon was Journey to the Center of the Earth in 1863, From Earth to the Moon in 1865, Around the Moon in 1870, which is funny because we did it 100 years later, later. Uh, <laughs> 20,000 Leagues uh, was 1870 also, uh, Around the World in 80 Days was 1873, and The Mysterious Island was 1875. And I think that 15 years is probably um, the time when he wrote the books that really defined who he was and, and his followers really enjoyed. Uh, during this time while he's writing these books, uh, his family spent a lot of time traveling. They'd actually uh, live on a yacht and travel and sail around to the many European countries. Uh, this seemed to be a pretty happy time for him. But as you know, all things kind of come to a close, um, all of us have tragedy in our life, and uh, Vern lost his mom and then lost his mentor, Hetzel, soon afterwards, and he was actually in a little bit of a financial crisis. So after this period of time where we see um, this exploration and these scientific adventures that are really hopeful, I, I mean, they are hopeful, but there are some dark to them. There's always a dark edge to his books. They're, you know, like the mm -hmm. downfall of man and the destruction that we cause. And then uh, we see him turning more after this point, more back to those dystopian societies and, and a little more pessimistic. They like to think of his pessimistic time when he was writing. So he probably, he's one of the the most inventive and rich storytellers that came out of this period of time along with H.G. Wells and drove a lot of what you see, I think, in um, comic books, a lot of what you see in, you know, they have those, um, the space adventure movies for the kids, or you'd see, you know, those sort of adventures like definitely came out of those books. Sounds like choose your own adventures for a moment. Well, what they were is they would be uh, cliffhangers. They'd have these cliffhangers every Saturday. The kids would go to the movie theater and they would see a short, well, I guess it was about an hour, 30 minutes, hour, kind of like we would see on television for 30 minutes. And then at the end, there'd be like a cliffhanger. And one of those would be about traveling space and meeting aliens and that sort of a thing. Like my dad and Uncle Jim would do this. Brian's dad. Walt Disney was also one of the people in Hollywood that were 
thoroughly influenced by Jules Verne, and we see that in two of the films that they made um, while Walt Disney was still alive. They made the 1962 film In Search of the Castaways, which is based on Captain Grant's children, and it starred uh, Haley Mills, yay, <laughs> and Marie Ch uh, Chevalier, Chiv oh, I can't, Chiv Chevalier, sorry, Chevalier, Marie Chevalier. He was in GG. <laughs> mm, yeah. Um, and then in 2004, obviously not a movie influenced by Walt Disney. Around the World uh, in 80 Days starring Jackie Chan. Did you see that, Ryan? Uh, if I did, <laughs> I don't recall. I mean, I remember it coming out, but I don't know if I actually uh -huh. saw it or not. So it's very, very memorable, obviously. Yeah. Oh, uh, Lord. I don't think it did. I really like Jackie well. Tan, and I yeah. saw a lot of his films, so there's a chance I did see this one, but I obviously don't remember it. Yeah, I can't. No, but there's really nobody else in that movie that stands out. So hmm. it was just, it was him. It was his vehicle, which I thought was really interesting. That's funny. Mm -hmm. And then, most famously, um, because it is, I think we have to say it is one of Walt Disney's masterpieces. It, you know, especially looking back at that, it's 1954. I mean, it's amazing for that time period. Uh, was the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And, you know, we're talking about that tonight. And that's why we're talking about Joel's bird. So, but yeah, I just, it's always fascinating to me to kind of like get a little glimpse into somebody's life because it kind of explains where they're going, how they got where they were, they were going. I, I never, it, the only thing I don't really understand is why this type of genre of book was so intriguing to him and why he just pulled so many things. Yeah, I, I'd love to spend, would have loved to spend a day with him and see where his mind goes and where he got his ideas. I think it'd be fascinating. Oh yeah. And he's a really, he's a really good writer. And I, of course I've only read the translated versions <laughs> of his novels obviously um but and i've only read two journey to the center of the earth and Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea and it was back probably middle school so it has been a long okay. time since i've read his his novels but i enjoyed them i do remember and really really enjoying them and i could see I could see why people were so influenced by his writing and I could see why he was a good storyteller storyteller and that's what Walt liked so I could see why Walt really loved Jules Verne. Yes, yes. He had he definitely had some intense very interesting characters in his book. They were I wouldn't say that they were like um marine just looking upwards. I wouldn't say that they were like one, Ugh. they were three dimensional, but kind of true to themselves. You know, they didn't diverge much from who they were. Um, there'd be some growth in the characters like you see in 20,000 Leagues, but they're still that same person in the core. Mm -hmm. I know they've made some great graphic novels with his books too for kids, which is, it works really, that would work really well with these stories for sure. It was just very imaginative, um, you know, really pushed like things like trying to explore the earth and then explore the seas, explore space. He was, you know, really into exploring um, and 
I just find it fascinating. I think I think all of us are fascinated by exploration. Yeah, and he and he lived the life, you know, traveling with his family. He lived what what he wrote too. You know, obviously he didn't, they didn't have the a submarine or you know I, he may have had a balloon flight here or there, but you know he really wanted to see what was out there and really get to know other people and different cultures. All right, so are we ready to talk about the movie? Woohoo! Yep. So, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is a rated G movie. And that- it's kind of funny because, as, as I, I almost compare this movie to, to Black Hole as it's, as, it's, as it's PG, because I feel like nowadays when you see an older mo- movie ra- rated, rated G, you just, you just see quite a bit of like crude humor to it. A tiny bit. Are you talking about twenty thousand? Not twenty thousand leagues under the sea. Are you talking about a different one? Well, yeah, I am talking about twenty leagues under the oh, sea. Oh, you thought there was crude humor in it? No, for oh, okay. for other 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 old films. Okay, yeah, there's no crude humor in twenty thousand leagues under well, the sea. No. <laughs> it was released on December twenty third, nineteen fifty four, and uh, the box office it did really really well it made 28.2 million dollars and their production cost was 4.3 million dollars so it kicked butt mm-hmm. well and i think it was the most expensive film walt had produced at that time oh i up believe to that it. day yeah it was yeah oh absolutely it it hovers around the same budget that mary poppins had and that was created 10 years later so it held that space for quite a long time wow. i'm sure mm-hmm. <laughs> i think what always fascinated me about disney is i mean they made some lower budget live action and that was intentional because they you know they wanted to make money right out of the gates but then they would really really not spare the dime and go he- dive headlong into these amazing projects and this mm-hmm. is this is one of them for sure yeah so I thought we would talk about the cast. It's super tiny. <laughs> well, yeah, and you technically, technically, fr- frankly, this cast was just like all males. Yes, girls and boys, it's all males. <laughs> because it's 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 like it's like those rights when 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 women didn't have didn't have the time to 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 explore more of the ocean. Well, you're talking about the U- the U.S. Navy was involved, so there weren't any women in the U.S. Navy at this point. And they're supposed to take place in, like, 1868. And then um, the submarine specifically was all men, and there's a reason we'll come to that later. Um, but And then there weren't a lot of women who were fishermen or um, whalers either. Because Kurt Douglas's character was essentially a whaler. And and yeah, we 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 do have a big m- memorial for him as he just he just died this year today this year. Well, not this year. It was this year. Kirk Douglas died this year. Yes. Did yeah, it was yeah he died at the age of one hundred and three, oh, okay. February fifth. Yeah. Oh, all right. You go, Kirk Douglas. Man, he he's a trooper. Huh. Well, his he he's uh, he left he left behind his wife of 101 years, and he's oh, and she's still alive. Wow, that's incredible. Yes, ma'am, it is. <laughs> All right, so the first person I'm going to talk about is Paul Lucas. He is uh, the eldest 
actor, and there's just four of them, essentially, that are in this movie that are really the only speaking roles. I mean, some people have some responses to what they say, but there's not a whole lot else going in this movie besides these four people. So Paul Lucas is born in 1895, and he plays Pro Professor Pierre Aronnax in the movie, and he was actually 59 years old when he did this role. So he had had a very long, extensive uh, career in Hollywood. Very impressive, actually. All four of these men had very impressive careers in Hollywood. He started his career in 1915. He's known for uh, the movie he made with Betty Davis, Watch on the Rhine. Uh, his, another movie is in the 1930s. Another movie he did in the 1930s. Uh, 30s was an Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Lady Vanishes, with Margaret Lockwood uh, and Michael Redgrave. So a lot of the younger kids aren't going to know who these actors are, and they definitely need to go look up these people because these people were the actors of Hollywood in the 30s um, and 40s. And if some people will recognize the name Redgrave, yes, because he was the father of Vanessa Redgrave and Lynn Redgrave. So go look them up too. <laughs> they um, started in Hollywood in the 60s. The Lady Vanishes is a really good Alfred Hitchcock film. Really, really right. good. And yeah. it's one of his it, earlier ones. Mm-hmm. So you don't and hear as much. And it, it, it's like, it, it's a, you don't really realize it at the some part until you're partway through watching it that it is a film about getting involved in World War II. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I need to watch that yeah. again. Yeah, and the different consequences of acting and behaving different ways in, in, in specifically different nations. And so there's like some people that are Brits on the train and you know mm -hmm. um, that are behaving in certain ways. There's there's a bunch of British people on the on the trains and then the consequences of if you behave this way or you make these choices, you know, these could be potential outcomes. It's it's very interesting. So was this made? Was this movie made in England or? Yeah, Does that's what I'm trying to figure out. Um, the lady vanishes. Y yes, I, I okay. believe I believe right. it was right before he came. I think it was the Selznick Studios. I believe. Okay. And it was right before he um, started working for. No, it says distributed by MGM. So it might have been right after. He, it, this would have been like right. At, it was. It was right around the time he was coming to the U.S. Okay. And starting to work for U.S. studios. So. Um, it's it really early. Like this, uh huh. Yeah. It, this, well, he had, Alfred had some earlier ones than this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think he was still working for the for the British studios though. Um, most renowned British films. Yeah. So yes. But it's it's, it's really good. I I strongly suggest this one. Um, this film. Yes, yeah, so we're gonna have to check this one out again. I always enjoy a good Alfred Hitchcock movie. I'll have to say. Right. And then this is where the term um, MacGuffin came from. So in filmmaking, there's the term MacGuffin. Okay. Um, and it's like, it's like, it's like a story device to drive the story, but not necessarily what, what it ends up being about. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yes. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So there, it's like, a, it's a plot element that's driving the story and keeping it going. And that's what that, so that's what the MacGuffin is. Comes from this film. So Paul Lucas didn't have any other Disney roles. So this was really um, the only one that he appears in. Um, 
And his character is a French scientist that is very curious and wants to get to the bottom of things and learn and, and make scientific research and experiment and just really discover everything and figure out everything. Because at this point, that's, that's almost an option because we don't really know a whole lot about anything. And he's very curious, uh, he's not scared to explore, and he's always up for a challenge. So he's, you know, and you'll kind of that, see that char character develop that way where he's going where he's not supposed to go to learn probably what he's not really supposed to know. <laughs> then we'll move on to Kirk Douglas. Uh, he was born in 1916 and he plays Ned Land. And like I mentioned earlier, he's a harpooner. And so he would have been a whaler on the whaler ships, you know, harvesting whales. And I, I, I have to, th I throw in that guy's age. I was 59 when this movie um, was made. And I'm throwing in these ages to kind of give myself a reference at my age, like kind of figure out where they are in their life. And Kirk Douglas was only 38 years old when he made this movie. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm 10 years older than him. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, well, happens if you turn 50. Well, it's going to happen and it'll, I'll turn 50. <laughs> still, you might have this. I'll, I'll just, I'll just see the times when, if I'm still with you. <laughs> we'll see. So, um, Kirk Douglas's career started late and that's because of World War II and he spent four years in the Navy. Uh, he's known for Spartacus. That's like his huge, you know, one of his huge roles. Uh, he, mm -hmm. he was Spartacus. Uh, he was in the gunfight at the OK Corral. He, he was Doc Holliday. He actually had additional roles kind of in the very broad Disney family. So back in the 80s and 90s. I don't think I really saw any of these movies. They're <laughs> I don't know how many people actually saw any of these movies. <laughs> we'll start there. So he made a couple movies for Touchstones. In 1986, Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster made the movie Tough Guys. Did you see that, Ryan? Um, no, I've never seen Tough Guys. No, I didn't see that. And then he was in a movie with Sylvester Stallone in 1991 called Oscar. I didn't see that. <laughs> and then I did not see that either. <laughs> he made a movie with uh, Miramax in 1999. This is so odd. With Dan Aykroyd and Jenny McCarthy called Diamonds. Did not see that one either. Hey, sounds like a Spencer movie right there. Right. And then he was also in the... I remember this one. This is the only one I remember of all these. It runs in the family, but I didn't see that one either. But I thought this was interesting is he produced... Uh, the Disney movie Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is the Rad, Rad, Ray Bradbury movie that was made in 1983. And apparently nobody went and saw that movie. So, oh, Lord, that did not do well. Did you see that one, Ryan? I did not see that one. Um, I know that I know the, the book, but I did not see the film. Is it, could it be on Disney Plus? It might be. We'll have to go and see. Of, of, of all the movies that he took part in, that's the that one I might take a look-see at. <laughs> Even if you know, it well, if if it feels like Disney Plus for me, sometimes picks up the bad stuff. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Kurt Douglas's character Ned Land, I have to say, literally comes out swinging in this movie. 
<laughs> right right off the get-go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He is something else. He is quite the character, and oh boy. Yeah, he's really a character in this movie, for sure. He's, I think he, like, denies the existence of the monster at, at first, and fearless, absolutely fearless. And uh, definitely looking out for himself all the time and and uh, even tries to, to pull in the next guy I'm going to talk to, prof the Professor Aronox's uh, sidekick, Conciel. Conciel? I think that's how you pronounce it. Conciel. Tries to drag Conciel into his plan. So uh, Conciel is played by Peter Lorre. Uh, Peter Lorre was born in 1904. So he's uh, 50, 50 years old when he uh, makes this film. He has just the most character face, you know, one of the most character faces you'll see in, in Hollywood. He is like, they would throw him into all the blockbusters. He's a great supporting actor, really um, knows how to deliver a line, knows how to make a scene interesting. And he's in, he's in everything. <laughs> it's insane. His career started in 1929. Um, some of the things that he's known for, Casablanca. <laughs> With Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. You know, he is Humphrey Bogart's you know, right-hand man in this movie. Um, yeah, that one, and that one's really, that's a really good, that's a really oh good yeah. film. Isn't it the guy where he mentioned, you mentioned him as Igor? Well, so he, he's not Igor. Well, no, don't worry. He's somewhere in there. And then um, we another classic he's in, the 1944 movie, Arsenic and Old Lace with Cary Grant. Mm -hmm. I love that movie. Yeah, that one's hysterical. It's a good one. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, it is just, you have to watch it. You can't explain it. It's just too bizarre. Like, you go, what? I'm like, no, you got to watch it. And then, of course, he was in the 1941 classic, The Maltese Falcon, with Humphrey Bogart mm -hmm. and Mary Astor. Because, of course, he was. <laughs> And it's a, that's another really good film. I really do like The Maltese Falcon. I mean, these films are classics for a really good reason. Mm-hmm. Agreed. He was also in a, an Alfred Hitchcock film, The Man Who Knew Too Much, the original one in 1934. Was there something he wasn't in? <laughs> it's just amazing. So the only other Disney movie he was in, I thought this was really cute and quite, quite fitting, He's in the 1934 Hollywood Party, which is, you know, the cavalcade of Hollywood stars that they kind of characterize. I oh, guess perfect. So, you know, Concio plays the professor's assistant and companion. He's kind of like always kind of watching out for the professor. His reputation kind of warns him. In the beginning, you'll see him warning him about the words being twisted by the, the media, the newspapers. But I thought it was how funny it was, how easily he was influenced to uh with Kirk Douglas to collect the gold gold balloons <laughs> let's go get the treasure chest uh, that was funny we have to talk about that later too when we're talking about the movie and all the all the the treasure chests. so and then certainly not the least we come to James Mason who plays Captain Nemo so he's the guy kind of he's the genius in this in this movie he's the one that's created this incredible technology um, done all this amazing exploration that the professor's just drooling over. So this is played by James Mason, and he was born in 1909. And he was 80, he was 45 when he played the role of Captain Nemo. And I'm like, these were some real men back then. 
you know, you got the wrinkles, <laughs> you've got, you know, grit on their face, you know, I mean, these, these men look their age for sure. And I appreciate that. His career started in 1935 and he actually worked up until the year he died in 1984. And there were three projects that were released posthumously. This is interesting. So I keep forgetting he's in this and then I remember he's in this. So he's known for Lolita, which is a very controversial movie that was made in the 1960s. I'm not gonna tell you what it's about. <laughs> if you don't know what it's about, you don't need to know what it's about. If you do, there you go. Uh, he was in A Star is Born with Judy Garland. He made that movie. He was really good in that one. I enjoyed him immensely in A Star is Born. And you see him, once again, we're bringing up Alfred Hitchcock, a thriller. He was in North by Northwest with Cary Grant. There's a lot of Hitchcock. There is, yes. There's some, some sort of like six degree thing going on with Hitchcock here. <laughs> I think the only one that wasn't involved with a Hitchcock film was uh, Kirk Douglas. Yeah. Yeah, it's really funny because I, I never think of him when I think of one of like the big movie stars, you know, back then. And maybe because it, he was a little bit later. These guys definitely were right in there. So he plays Captain Nemo. It's definitely a very dark, mysterious, secretive character. He trusts no one, pretty much thinks all men are evil and out for profit, and pretty traumatic family storyline going on with him. So mm -hmm. it's understandable. He's like, so you have, you have the Captain Nemo pitted against the professor who sees like all the good and the wonderful that can come from science and then you you have the captain nemo that definitely sees the dark side of it yeah and you did nickname two of these actors e igor and well well ned basically was oh did that, i was that it <laughs> yeah well peter lord there's a uh, actor that played Igor that was kind of Igor that kind of used Peter Lorre as an example. Oh, so yeah, yeah. Now I'm getting here. So he was, he, they drew him for Igor. Mm -hmm. They drew on his, yeah. So there are obviously some other characters in this movie, and like I said, they're pretty small parts, not very influential in the story. I thought the most weird offsetting thing was how the rest of the crew on the submarine didn't really speak. It's a very mechanic, very robot kind of lack of thought going on there. It was kind of creepy. Um, I believe that that's on purpose. Okay. Because you've got like, they also have that backstory that um, the Captain Nemo have. They were, you know, on that, they were prisoners on an island and, mm -hmm. and, and forced, basically forced labor. Forced labor. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm sure many of them had similar backstories to him. And they were kind of more of a group mentality. And um, you see the two... With Captain Nemo, you see his view of humanity is such that he, he like, like men are inherently evil. Mm -hmm. Whereas you have the professor where he's like, men are inherently good in society. Mm -hmm. And so I use that. I use the term men um, um, in terms of more in terms of um, both men and women and how you how how you would see that. So. Um, and, and this actual book, um, the reason why I use men instead of just more people is because it really, 
is very centered around. There's not very many female characters in here, um, and at, and at the time historically, you know, it would have been it would have been men that were um, causing the wars and that kind of thing. Um, so, um, yeah, just kind of from a historical perspective, but so the two really have opposing points of uh, opposing points of view. Um, and so then you've, and you, and you, it sets it up. So you've got like basically two factions. You've got a, you've got Captain Nemo's faction, uh, 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 who thinks, who thinks that, you know, just humanity is basically, um, evil. And then you've got the professor who, who, who thinks humanity is, um, good. Then you get a few, then you get like somebody like Ned who, who is like more just <laughs> the, the lone wolf independent. Uh-huh out for himself kind of thing and stuff. So um, it's, it's interesting how all of it plays out too. So yeah, everyone definitely has their pivotal moments. Right. That's but then you've got this. Mm-hmm. So, so you've got like, you see like the Navy and the, 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 the warships and stuff. And so you've got that whole group thing going on, but then you have Captain Nemo and his whole group thing going on. Mm-hmm. And I think there is, there, there's definite dangers when you get into a groupthink mentality. Yeah, no matter where you come from, I think is what we're trying. Right. Yeah, you know, they're saying. Yeah, yeah. Either way, either way, you've got mm-hmm. kind of groupthink mentalities going on. Right. And stuff, and so um, I, I really do think one thing that Jules Verne is trying to do here is to try and get people to think for themselves. Be Ned. <laughs> Um, I don't know if it's necessary, but part some of Ned, yes, that like there are some definite characteristics to Ned that that um, he would be saying yes, these are great characteristics to have because Ned's a great character. He's not he he's is. not black or white. He's not good or bad and stuff. Right. He's a great character in in there, and so it makes it it makes it more of an interesting story. He's just he's just neutral to what comes along. I think yeah, Ned's like a really important person to have in that because because. You've got this guy who, this is my job. I'm really good at it. I do it because I love doing it. And I'm not part of the Navy. I kind of move from ship to ship, whoever needs me. But I kind of have that freedom Mm -hmm. to move. And I'm not tied down to anybody. Like you could, you know, yeah, definitely the freedom. So I, I appreciate that kind of mentality. I mean, that's, I mean, I don't agree with Ned on everything. (laughs) But does that really ever happen? That would be a little strange if you did. And I see, and it's funny because you see Nemo's point and you see the professor's point. And he's like, you wish they could meet like kind of somewhere in the middle because neither what them saying is wrong. It's just not like the absolute. Yeah. It could go this way or it could go that way. And it usually lands up somewhere in the middle. I like your insight, Ryan. I was good. I was to move into some of the, the crew that worked on this film. And uh, the writer was Earl Felton. He's the one that translated Jules Verne's book into the screenplay, which I think he did a, a pretty good job, Con- all things considered. You could definitely see where pieces moved around, but I think it, it kept its continuity and it kept it true to the characters. Uh, he's a longtime Hollywood screenwriter, but no like huge hits, a lot of B-movies was what I was seeing. And it, it is his only contribution to Disney. So he's kind of like a Ned. He's a Ned. He likes to move around a lot. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, now, like a shark. Like a shark. There you go. Uh, so then I'm going to kind of delve kind of to the right just a little bit. I had to bring this up because um, you got to talk about Peter Ellen Shaw if you're going to talk about this movie or, or any of the great Disney movies for that fact. He mm-hmm. did the amazing matte backdrop paintings that you see in this movie. So that Captain Nemo's Island, that is a painting. And you need to know that because it's amazing. And yeah, and this is like one of these features, these levers and features where you just, just so you have the backgrounds, they just feel like animated. They do, but they don't. They, they, they have that like concept, you know, a little bit of that twist of animation because it's like too, like, it's because it's a little bit over the top, but they're just so beautiful and you enjoy looking at them. Mm hmm. And that island's Volcania. It's the yes, island of Volcania. Um, yeah. And what's fascinating to me is I wouldn't even like have picked up on it, but have you seen that prop culture show on Disney Plus, Ryan? Yes. Yeah. Did you see the Tron episode? Yes. Okay. Where I did. They're at his son's house, Harrison Ellenshaw's house, who's his son, and they have the painting from Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea on, on their wall at their house. Yeah, the matte painting of Volcania is uh-huh. there. It's gorgeous. It's amazing. It is. It is. It it, it could be at a, any museum. For I sure. mean, it could be featured in a different plush show. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it could. That painting could be featured at a condo. <laughs> Do you want to move it to the condo? <laughs> well, I don't think specifically. Our Specific. <laughs> it needs to be by the sea. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then I started like thinking, I started looking into Peter's son and he, it's so funny because he was the visual effects supervisor on Tron and that's why they were at his house. And then his father just happens to be Peter Ellen Shaw. <laughs> there you go. And he, you know, and he did all those amazing backdrops for Mary Poppins. Yes. The beautiful scenes on the rooftop of London, the beautiful scenes of London and the beautiful scenes of St. Paul's Cathedral. So, and then um, he also did a lot and, of work for, yes. And th- these kind of films really set up um, a backdrop for how films are done today, um, but they were just done with like kind of matte paintings and and, and instead of like a computer background, exactly. computerized. Yeah, yeah, these are, the, so they, they didn't have, of course, the computers to do that. So they would have to hand paint, hand draw, the the backgrounds here um and both in, in certain mm-hmm. scenes and Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea and then definitely mary poppins so it kind of like set up for how we do a lot of films today where they're actually inside of a studio and a green screen in front of a green screen with a computer generating the background here they just had matte paintings right it's, it's quite it's quite fascinating um, um it's kind of like a precursor to how the films are shot today. Yes. Yeah, it, it's really kind of funny because I almost um, would rather see these beautiful paintings than all the CGI that we do today. I know it's not possible because they get into such crazy, crazy detail, but we just saw, what was the movie we just saw? Oh, oh Mulan. Bop, or Mulan. Mulan. And oh, yeah. It's, okay, it's beautiful. Don't get me wrong, but I just... I want something more textural 
that I feel like I can touch it and they'll be gritty. You know, yeah. I need that dirt. I need the layers. I don't, it looks too smooth all the time. And I, I wanna, I wanna like cut my hand on it. And that's how you feel in these older movies. Do you feel like it's like, you know, the rooftops of Mary Poppins is like smoky and gritty and, um, well, all of London is in that, and Mary Poppins. It is right. really gritty, um, right. and it's, a, it's stylized that way on purpose. Peter mm-hmm. Ellenshaw stylized the background, so with that kind of thing, you would get like a very stylized look to something like Mary Poppins, um, the way it was shot. Same thing with um, well, what, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, with the way it was art directed and the backgrounds and the sets and how they blended together, kind of thing. So it gives a very stylized look to the film, which makes those films in my opinion very timeless right right they they hold up today you you watch them today and you're just like this this is gorgeous even even by today's standards you're like this is a gorgeous set and some gorgeous backgrounds so and it won i mean it won the, the academy award for best art direction that year and you can see why yeah it actually won two so best art direction and best special effects and Mm hmm I like it's kind of like they just dropped the mic. <laughs> <laughs> totally, absolutely, yeah. Because I don't think we were doing anything better in the 1980s, and that's 30 years later. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and that was that was that was the best way to that backdrop, like like almost almost fictional looking islands. Mm-hmm. I like them. Uh, moving on to the director. The director was Richard Fleischer. Okay, for anybody out there that knows anything about the back history of animation, yes, this is Fleischer of Fleischer Studios. So this is the son of Max Fleischer. Um, It was Max and Dan or Dave Fleischer who started the Fleischer Studios um, that created out of the ink animation and the Betty Boop cartoons. And later on, you'd see... Uh, the full-length animated feature that was trying to um, compete with Disney, Gulliver's Travels. So they're the, they're the family that created that. And Walt actually went to Max Fleischer and asked him if it was okay if his son directed the movie for him. <laughs> Which I thought is so sweet. That's so sweet. <laughs> that is very sweet, yes. Richard Fleischer, uh, he did a lot of these action movies. Back then, this was kind of like his forte, what he did. He did a lot of the epic fantasy movies. Um, his, probably his most famous one was a little bit further down the road with Burt Lancaster in the futuristic uh, feature Soylent Greens. <laughs> so I won't spoil it for you if you haven't seen it before. So Soylent Greens are people. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Oh, man. So I just thought that was so funny how it's from the Fleischer family. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he also did um, Conan the Destroyer. Yes! The way this epic, they're awesome. I love it. Mm, right? I remember that from when I was a kid. Uh-huh. <laughs> do you remember watching Gulliver's Travelers, Travels? Yes, I do. They showed it so many times when I was a kid on television. It's crazy. Yeah, and the other one that I watched a lot was uh, Doctor Doolittle. 
Yeah. With, with Rex Harrison. That, yes. the, the, doc, yeah, the, 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 uh, what, 1967 film, Dr. Doolittle. Oh yes. All the time that was on. I loved yeah. his outfits, man. Mm-hmm. Good yeah. Stuff. So well, I've seen some of his films too. Like it's so fascinating because the people that worked on this on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea just had such amazing careers in Hollywood. Yes. Well, that's how you make a good movie. Mm. <laughs> you have to have a lot of experience. Well, and they spared no expense. I mean, they paid for these yes. people. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, now we're going to come to one of Ryan's favorite songs. From his favorite movie. <laughs> From his favorite movie. <laughs> Sung by Kirk Douglas. And it is... A whale of a tail. A whale of a tail. <laughs> Got a whale of a tail to tell you now. Whale of a tail to tell you. Got a whale of a tail to tell you, lads. A whale of a tail or two. About the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tail and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. There was Mermaid Minnie. Met her down in Madagascar, she would kiss me any time that I would ask her. Then one evening, her flame of love blew out. Which is fun fact featured in the Electrical pa- Passion Parade. It is? The Water Passion. Parade. Oh, it is! Oh, how funny! I didn't even make that connection. Yeah, they um, have it uh, in the music loop at the, at the entrance in the Esplanade area. Oh, cool. Yeah, they'll have this one, and uh, usually, uh, sometimes they'll also have, like, the, um, oh, the in- introduction titles okay. song, yeah, music, too. Yeah, oh, yeah, they still use, they still use the music from this in their theme parks from this film. It's some good music. Yeah, it is. So the song was written by Al Hoffman and Norman Gimbel. Uh, Al Hoffman went on to write music for Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. And Norman Gimble has no other contributions to Disney. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, yeah, I love I love Al Hoffman's songs. We're just gonna say that since I found out what he wrote, I'm like, oh, he wrote all those wonderful songs. I love them. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're gonna get to um, another amazing man that worked at Disney, Harper Golf. Golf. Because say it's not right. Harper Goff. Yes. Yep. Harper Goff. Gotta love him. Amazing uh, scene decorations. And uh, I think he's one of the ones that came to Disney and really wanted him to do this and brought in all his sketch boards on the Nautilus and what he thought it should look like. Because he designed the Nautilus for this um, movie. And all the sets for the Nautilus. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm model of it and everything yeah he was yeah yeah some good stuff yeah he was the production designer uh, on this film i think the set designer too and probably Probably. like one of the most iconic pieces in there is the organ yes there which do you know where the organ is at hot mansion baby yeah and and where's the disneyland haunted mansion disneyland Disneyland. and where's the cushion of, of the organ where was it? The what? And where was the cushion of the organ? I don't know. I don't know. The Haunted Mansion movie. Oh. <laughs> oh, of course. It's hysterical. Why not? That's awesome. 
Oh my gosh. And we've talked a little bit about Harper Golf before because he spent a lot of time in Houston um, mm -hmm. building a private box for Roy Hoffheinz. And he was big into the Houston Astros. And um, I don't know if that guy really had money or not, but he sure spent it. <laughs> yeah. So if you've ever been down to Houston and went to Astro World back in the day, you know, um, if you stayed at one of the, the Astro World Hotel, uh, the penthouse uh, mm -hmm. suites there were all designed by Har Harper Goff. They're basically movie sets. Yes, they were. And, and yeah, they could drop them to any period piece movie in Hollywood. You probably should have mm -hmm. made some money by renting them out to, for Hollywood to use. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All They were very popular. Elite people from all over the world came to stay in those. Oh, yeah. Sweet. So if you're a Texan, um, there's your Texas connection. <laughs> it always comes back to Texas. Right. Yeah. So he worked for the Disney company from 1951 until his death in 1993. He was still um, helping or, you know, consulting with them. So. Yeah. Um, and we've talked about... Um, uh, a couple of films. So one of them we talked about was Casablanca, and he was also the set designer for Casablanca, which is exciting. And then um, another film that we grew up watching, he was the art director for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the 1971 version. Oh, okay. Oh, well then, he has a special place in my heart. Holy cow! I love that movie. <laughs> yeah. Because it, that, that right? music so many, so many hit, hit the 2005 one. Well, it's because it's not good. <laughs> And then one of your favorite attractions, he also designed, or Jeff's too, yeah. Which one? The, the Jeff's? The Jungle Cruise. Oh, the uh, Jungle Cruise, yes. So it's a that's, a, that's a Harper Goth design. That's awesome. Yeah. Didn't Mark Davis make it funny? Yep, and then Mark Davis came in and <laughs> re-added to it, yeah, later on in the 60s when they kind of um, did a little bit of a, um, a transformation of that. Yeah, he, he must have been quite the character, Mark Davis, his sense of humor. Yep. So there wasn't a lot of humor in the Disney parks until Mark Davis came in and did some of the designs. So Yep, that was his job. Mm-hmm. He did it well. He did. And uh, like we mentioned before, the, the film was done in Cinemascope, and that's why it looks as good as it looks, for sure. And real quick, I'm going to talk about the... There's a giant squid in this movie. <laughs> Which that's just that's just the only thing I would I I would heard of from the film. Yes, yes, I think everybody knows about the giant squid. Well, that's because the giant squid was quite an operation. It was 40 feet, with actually two feelers stretching out 50 feet. It could like kick up about eight feet of water, and it took 28 men to operate it. I mean, that's just insane. I don't even know where you hide all those people. <laughs> and you know, they filmed the scene twice because once they did it where it was a lot calmer. And, and at sunset. And, yeah, and you could see too much of what was going. It didn't, it didn't look real. It's hard. It's hard to make something like that look real. I mean, it doesn't really yeah. look real. I mean, it does. You know, it's, it's characterized, so it's not you know, spot on. I mean, it's a gigantic octopus that was based on the novels when when, when it ate, like, the Christ Christian ships. Uh -oh. The big wooden ships? 
Is that what you're the about? Columbus, yeah. the Columbus, Columbus ship, yeah, the Clippers, yeah, 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 yeah. The, sorry, the Clipper ships, the, yeah, the Crisis ship. Yep. I, I think I'm gonna pull up a joke here. Oh, she's gonna pull up a joke right. here. Enter <laughs> joke. All right. Preserve. Yeah. We begin to excavate them. We expect to start hauling out the bodies. Not that. Okay. You're gonna talk, not him, right? The state mm. of preservation. Still, they add more. Okay. Okay. So there was a joke in TED Talks where it's like, oh, did you find the the abandoned ship that says your your town down on it? Did you find the ship that said that? You, how do you know you found the Yorktown? Because it says Yorktown on it. <laughs> is that your joke? Where the tre treasure is beneath. Uh huh. Okay, keep going. Okay, keep going. All right, where were we? I do like that joke. It is funny. Did you hear that, Ryan? I didn't quite catch it. Okay. I was cutting. I cut out. Okay. There's a this you know undersea explorer, and they found the Yorktown. And the some people came up to him and said, "Well, how do you know you found the Yorktown?" He said, "Because it said Yorktown on the side of it." <laughs> it's, uh, it's it kind of sounds like a dad joke that would be captured in like kid cartoons. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a dad joke. That's funny. I know. I love that. that. Is a good one. That is a good one, Fiona. Alrighty. So the film twenty thousand under twenty thousand leagues under the was filmed um, on stage three on the Disney Studios in a massive underwater tank measuring about 18 feet. It was also filmed on the back lots of Universal and Century, uh, 20th Century Fox. Uh, the location shots, because we're definitely getting location shots here, uh, were done in Jamaica and the Bahamas. And the cavern scene that you see is now part of a the Extavi Resort on the Cliffs of Negrel, which is also on the island of Jamaica. So you can actually go there if you stay at that resort. So oh, okay. Boom. Who knew, right? Who knew? Somebody knew. Well, <laughs> Not me. <laughs> yeah, I guess Jules Verne was great long, long, long before. Um, Matthew Murray, U.S. Naval off Officer, back in 1842. He he was superior. Superintendent. He was superintendent of the Department of the Department of Charts and Illustrations. Instruments. Of, instruments of the Navy Department, and currents and winds from the sea. Oh, he studied the currents and the winds. Yes. Yeah, so this is yeah. about. 25 years before this this book that was a little trivia from biology right there Fr from your um aqua aquatic science class yeah you're welcome <laughs> i like it That's some good trivia all right so now we're going to dive into this the story of Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea and the movie opens up, and, and this is what I thought was really um, interesting, because looking at it, it screams San Francisco. Just the way you see the the way that the buildings are set up, it's all wood. Um, you see the the um, very well dressed women that would be working at the bars. Oh, yeah, <laughs> are, didn't they have all like a, a metal bridge somewhere in the movie? A metal bridge. I don't remember. Was there a bridge somewhere? <laughs> Probably. I might. Have, I might have messed that up. 
I don't I don't think there was a metal bridge yet. If you're talking about the Golden Gate Bridge, that wasn't there in San Francisco yet. It wasn't. Yeah, yeah. I've... Is that what you is that what you meant, Fiona? Yeah, I've, I was thinking about a little, almost like a bounce scene with 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 the ship and and the sub, which we're almost there. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay, you're right. So when you open up, there is like the submarine is attacking a ship. Yes, and you don't quite know it's a submarine. You just see you see something attacking a ship with fiery eyes. So, yeah, eyes ablaze. Green, mm-hmm. kind of like green fiery mm-hmm. eyes to it. Yes. And then um, right before that, I think it's in, I think it has like it's very interesting the opening credits where you've got like the curtain like a theater curtain with um, they're projecting like, kind of a wavy water pattern on it. Like, I think it's beautifully done. Like, oh, mm-hmm. who, who knew that twenty thousand links was a, was a play all along? Oh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's, it, it kind of, it does have that kind of like yeah play theatrical very yeah it's very dramatic but makes it feel like it's all real life Mm -hmm. yeah there is a feeling of of sets definitely because you have the painted backgrounds which are beautiful you know and hard to like really understand that they are painted backgrounds but um they're like too good to be real like (laughs) (laughs) yeah take that babes in toyland (laughs) there you go yeah, it wasn't Babes in Toyland. Much better quality than Babes in Toyland. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. so much better. Yes. You could tell that the Western town was definitely the back lots of uh, Hollywood for sure. Very and there good. was the ocean in the background there. You could tell you're at a dock or a pier. The orchestration's beautiful in the opening, too. It's very classic Hollywood how it opens with the dramatic there's bound to be scary parts in this film oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah i think you're right i mean i never really thought about it like that but yeah i could tell yeah the music and the way it is yeah it's very it is dramatic and you can hear that there's gonna be some scary parts yeah it's almost like a tip back to the 1930s where it would be much more theatrical back then i think than it was mm-hmm. in the 50s. So it's definitely a nod to, to that era. Because it's like, oh, as most Disney films would go, they seem to be fully smooth, soothing, but, the, but then get to a fight scene where, oh, there, there's bound to be some chopping up scenes. The climax? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> chopping up mm-hmm. scenes. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this this movie is it's interesting in a in a way how they open it up in in San Francisco. You know, after we've had the opening scene of of what's happening out in the Pacific Ocean, and and then you have people on the land that are denying that this is actually happening. And I think Ned Land's even one of them. That's kind of like, oh, that's not really happening. You know, they're just making up these tales. Oh yeah, let's go see if it's really happening. Like I gotta see it for myself, kind of a guy. Yeah, it even causes a, a fight on the streets because of it, which I thought mm-hmm. was pretty funny. Yeah. So I really enjoyed that scene in San Francisco, and I enjoy the other scene in San Francisco where Aronax, the professor, gets cornered by the newspapers and is really questioned. It's almost like questioning his sanity. It seems like, oh, you think there's a monster? Or, you know, oh, what do you think it is? And... You know, he's kind of a little naive dealing with with that type of class of people. 
and how the press takes it and really runs with it. I think that's interesting. <laughs> Literally <laughs> running. Specific reporters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, they did. <laughs> oh. When you saw those ships in the back, I really like that first mount map painting with all the ships in the background, the harbor, and um, how active it was there in San Francisco. I thought they did a good job of depicting what it could have looked like in the 1800s. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, sure. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure we have some paintings and something to look at that you know he could draw from, but there's not mm -hmm. a whole lot because this is quite a while ago and and it's a pretty rough and tumble town. Yeah, San Francisco would have been a very rough and very a western, a very western frontier town in a lot of ways. It was on the verge of changing mm -hmm. into a, into a, a metropolitan mm -hmm. city at the time, but would have definitely been kind of a definitely a western town uh transitioning away from maybe western frontier and mining to a more cosmopolitan town but not yet <laughs> no 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 and even um you know my husband and i lived in san francisco for about two years and the apartment complex that we lived on it lived in in, in san francisco was actually a, a bordello at one point so yeah that was extremely common in san francisco um, just as it's part of its deep, deep history for sure. So I think after that, so we're kind of introduced to our main characters from different avenues and they try to kind of show how they're coming from different backgrounds. And our next scene really were on the, on the boat and it's a U.S. Navy boat. Well, how did, or, and he got recruited. Oh, so do you, okay, he got go recruited. Back. Talk about. <laughs> yeah, he got yeah, because uh, the professor gets recruited by by the U.S. government to go on this expedition, mm -hmm. and the the newspaper article that the journalists run and they had sensationalized um, helps the U.S. government find the professor, and so then they think that they're just kind of the professor just at first thinks that they're kind of just coming into. I don't know, possibly make fun of him or give him a hard time or something. And they're like, no, no, we, we think you're at, there's something going on out in the Pacific and we want your expertise to go find out what's going on, basically. Right. Um, and so then he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I, I think because he got bucked by the news people, then he's a little weary of yeah. talking about it when the Navy comes in. But it is in the, the Navy's best interest to figure out what is going on because they're losing ships, uh, they're losing, you know, people are losing their jobs, their lives, um, you know, it's something they really need to take care of. Yeah, so the U.S. government definitely is interested in what's going on and why are we losing our ships. <laughs> <laughs> Commercial and, and military. Right. So then we're on the ship. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yes. <laughs> now we're no, on the no. ship. Now we made it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, please. With Ned, the harpooner, and everybody, we make it on there. Because uh, Ned's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, an interesting character here. Yeah. He is. They, they show him, and he gets in a fight. That's that's his first scene in the film. With, with a fighting. bunch of guys that almost almost bear to represent, like, Abraham Lincoln. Oh, the, 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 were they wearing the top, the big hats? Well... No, but oh, they, no. they had the facial hair. Oh, the hair. Gotcha. Just that. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. There's their reference. Yeah, a harpooner. So he's a whale harpooner. So obviously whale hunting is still legal at this point. Um, mm -hmm. Very proud of himself at his job. And fearless. Absolutely fearless. Kind of a Captain Ahab sort of fearless, yeah. 
He's going out to, to hunt stuff. But he doesn't actually think that this thing is real either. No. Uh-uh. Or that yeah. it's doing the destruction that people think it's doing. Because it's he's like, yeah. wait a minute. I've been on the sea forever. What is? What are you guys talking about? That's not <laughs> what happened out there. We're on the ship, by golly. We are sailing to find the monster. We're going to find that monster, by golly. And um, I, what, what's so funny is say, after months of searching, the monster is spotted. It is like 30 seconds <laughs> that they're on this boat. And uh, mm -hmm. I think they, they see another, I think they see it attack another boat is what's going on. Yes, mm -hmm. they do. They said they see another boat in distress. Right. They're like, they're, yeah. And so they're trying to answer. They're trying to help that ship out that's that was sunk by um, the Nautilus. Right. And, and fun fact, there's there's a ABC pen, pen set that features the Nautilus. As we, we did question about oh, obscure pens. So cool. Yeah. Obscure pens for a moment. Yes. Awesome. And uh, so, and then it, it the Nautilus turns, and I think they, do they fire on the Nautilus first? You're going to have to guide us through this, right? They fire yeah. on the Nautilus, mm -hmm. and the Nautilus turns to go after them. Mm-hmm. And gets them. And, and Ned is trying to harpoon it, still right. thinking, he's like, He's like, oh my gosh, this sea creature is real and stuff. And he's trying to harpoon it and his harpoon bounces off of it. And Ned at that point realizes, oh my gosh, it's metal. Mm -hmm. uh, but he, was, he, and every, he and everybody's going down with the ship. And, and so um, the professor had gone overboard with his um, sidekick. And <laughs> Ned goes overboard. And so they, they, they're in the sea and then everybody else is sinking. Right, right. So we see them going off. And I think it's Aronix and Council. They come upon the Nautilus first. And it's it's motionless and it's just sitting on the water at this point. And they, they come up mm -hmm. to it. And what I think is so funny is Ned finds it too. I mean, what's the chances? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but it works out perfectly. They're, they're in the same current. Yes. <laughs> Peacefully drift towards the, the submarine, and they and they realize that it, it is a submarine that they're they're looking at, and they board it, of course, because that's what you do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and this is this is really where you see Ironics having having no fear. You know, his curiosity of the sea and the curiosity of the technology overtakes him, and he really starts diving deep into this uh, vessel. Which yeah, is... he starts nerding out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's just totally geeking out. <laughs> look, look at the technology. Yeah. <laughs> and there's nobody on it. So they're kind of Well, and he's like impressed by like the lighting system. And uh -huh. if you did it in historical context, I mean, there really wasn't electrical lights. And so if this was like, this would have been the first electrical lights you would have seen. Right. I mean, half of deep, deep diving summary, submarines are being controlled but, I mean, many submarines could be patrolled by two or three person vessels. Oh, yeah. So you're looking at basic types of deep diving submersibles. Two to three people. Ah. There we go. Get some more aqua science, girls and boys. You're welcome. But I like how this movie can lead you into aqua science. I mean, that's, I think, I think Jules Verne did that on purpose. Oh, absolutely. It's definitely intentional. Yeah, going exploring the sea and the ecology of the sea and getting deeper into that. 
Oh, yeah. And you see this uh, when Aronix, uh, I think he finds the big window that he can, because uh, nobody's on the ship. And he sees through the big window and they're actually having, it looks like a funeral. Um, someone has passed away. Yeah. Well, probably from the shelling of the ship. People had, people were injured and were killed when the when the Nautilus was shelled by that by the U.S. Navy. Or some real just just quote that oh everyone we found treasure for that scene. In that scene, well, there's treasure a little bit later. True. I don't think there's treasure in this. Oh, on the boat. No, when on I was talking about the coffin scene. Oh, okay, the coffin scene. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, don't worry, boys and girls. They just have treasure inside that big tank. <laughs> yes, there is treasure above uh, aboard the submarine, for sure. Mm. I like how you make the how Fiona makes the connection between um, her current class, mm -hmm. aquatic science class, and and the film too. That's spectacular. Just like makes me so happy. <laughs> I think it would make Jules Verne happy too. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to go on a, I'm trying to go on a, on a moon, moon of watching like sea theme movies. That's yeah. good. Yeah, I think we're gonna watch. Um, there's gonna be like a conversation, I believe, through one of one of the oceanic departments of the government. They're having two guest speakers talk about uh, what they're what they're doing right now, and. The types mm. of research they're doing, and I, I can't remember which organization it's through, and we're going to be watching that this week through her school. Yes, I go to school with her. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, we explained. <laughs> yes, we're we're returning to, to school for a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, totally off. <laughs> Let's just go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, Fiona's starting school tomorrow. So. <laughs> Yay! Just, it's a um, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then one week, Tuesday, Thursday, the next. So, um, so Ned lands up on the boat too, and he starts going into the submarine also. And you know, they see that the whole crew is out um, having a funeral for one of the people that died because uh, it was a pretty big confrontation that they had between the U.S. Navy and the submarine, and um, I think they got some good hits on the submarine for sure. Mm hmm I think they did too. Yeah, yeah for some reason, uh, uh, when I think of Elias seeing this movie with that coffin scene, I thought he was going to think, uh, I, I kind of heard about a meme called the coffin dance. What? It's a thing. Okay. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I want to look that up or not. Yeah. You don't, mm. you don't have to. Okay. I'm going to pass. Then we, we have our confrontation with Nemo, our first with Captain Nemo, mm -hmm. and obviously having someone trespassing on your boat is not a happy moment for anybody. <laughs> Especially when you don't, you want to keep your boat a secret from the planet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> Nemo doesn't want anybody to know about this ship. No, he doesn't want anybody knowing about the technology. He doesn't you know, want anybody knowing where they're from, how what they're doing. Absolutely. Which to Aronix is very upsetting. Because, you know, he's looking at what they're doing as so far ahead that he wants to share it with everybody. And is kind of upset with Captain Nemo's choices. And uh, what's interesting is Captain Nemo um, decides that Ned and Council are expendable. And um, kicks them out of the boat, but thinks uh, Aronix is stay. But uh, this is to Aronix 
to his, his credibility. Yeah, credibility. He says, you know what? If you're going to kill them, then kill me too, because I'm not okay with this. So all three are put out to the edge of the submarine, and they're going to submerge the submarine and then basically drown them. Drown them, right? Yeah. But uh, Captain Nemo, in his kind of twisted way, thinks this is good, and then almost at the moment when they um, are about to uh, lose connection with the submarine, decides to spare all three because of Nemo's choices, and then brings them back onto the boat. That's a little absent-minded. Absent-minded? What do you mean by absent-minded? Like, oh, Captain, you, you don't know what you're doing. Captain Nemo? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a harsh guy. He was testing he was testing the group and testing the professor to see how devoted he was and see see where his moral compass was. And right. apparently he passed Nemo's test, although it was an odd test. Um, yeah. It's because the professor is very devoted to his friends, very loyal, and um, even even to his own death. At that point, at that point, Nemo knew he could trust the professor because he would also have, he, he, I think he thinks like Nemo, uh, the professor will have that kind of loyalty to him too. Nemo thinks that. Right. So he's going to start trusting the professor with his secrets and, and his technology. And he's heard of the professor too. He knows who the professor is. Yeah. 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 He definitely does. I mean, he's world renowned. He's, you know, been quite... He's an older gentleman, so I'm sure he's been around quite a while mm-hmm. and has a uh, large notoriety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a it's an interesting part of this of this uh, story. Yeah, I you definitely cannot trust Captain Nemo though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he might turn on a dime on you. Mm, true. So then we see um, Captain Nemo takes uh, Aronix to the penal colony island of Rua Bent. Uh, Nemo reveals that he was once a prisoner there, as were many of his crew. And so he's kind of talking about the loyalty that the crew has to him and why they why they have that loyalty. And you can kind of see, like, at this point, I think Nemo is trying to recruit the professor to become part of his crew. Yeah, yeah. He thinks that um, he can get him on board by telling him the story of, of why they are and why they exist. Mm-hmm. And I think the professor spends a lot of time trying to get Nemo to trust humans again, to have faith in humans again. There seems to be a back and forth between them on that, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like trying to get him to not just judge everything from his one experience and realize that there's other experiences. Which is an uphill battle because Nemo's backstory is quite awful. And he tells it to you. I mean, right. Nemo was... Nemo and all Captain Nemo and all of his um, crew were on that island. They were enslaved on that island, and they were tortured. And um, they thought that they could get Nemo's secrets out of him. The the men on the island capturing his wife and child, and they eventually killed his wife and child. Right. So I mean, he has he has a, he has some he has some reason to be bitter against humanity. Oh yeah! Oh, absolutely. Those were they're horrible, horrible people. It's it's a yeah. It was a little hard for me to to get what was going on. I wasn't hearing absolutely everything, Captain Nemo. I should have turned the captions on. Close captions. Oh. <laughs> that that happens. Sometimes. But that bugs some some little siblings right there. Close yeah. captions. Oh, the close captions. Yeah. 
No, actually, it's Jeff. Jeff, my husband's like, turn the closed captions off. And I'm like, no, no, I need them. <laughs> well, we totally needed them for, 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 for like Hamlet. Oh, yes. <laughs> Hamilton. Well, it Hamilton. means you're strong visual and not, not, not strong auditory, and that's okay. Because I think that's important. That's an important little twist. If, if you have a child mm-hmm. or if you know you yourself are a strong visual learner, mm-hmm. then you need the captions on. Um, it will help you a lot. Well, it's captions for some certain words you won't understand. Yep. Right, right. And you're, it'll help your kids, too. And, and, and comprehending. Yeah, I have a longer time audially processing something than mm-hmm. like a typical person does. And so it takes me a few minutes. And then, um, mostly because I have to shut down all the thoughts in my head first. <laughs> but reading, I'm zoomed focused. So it's really easy mm-hmm. for me to zoom focus on those words and just be able to stay, stay in, in the rhythm in that moment for sure. But I can help you out too with this film. <laughs> I, yeah, I heard wife and son died. I'm like, wait a minute, I missed a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I He's got a very tragic, he has a very tragic backstory and a reason, a definite reason why he is doing what he's doing. Um, he's justifying killing. Just any. They're going to, they, they, he thinks see. that they're, he's trying to prevent death by killing people. So and right. he justifies it that way and, and through his backstory. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. Especially since yeah. what they're doing on the island is, I believe, that they are um, mining and using the resources of that island to use in wartime. Correct. So that's, that's, you know, so he's like, I don't want them doing that and then using those to kill other people. They're basically weapons dealers on that island. Right. Now, yeah. uh, that was what where I had a little, it got a little fuzzy for me because um, I'm thinking, okay, so these are, so is what they're doing from, a, is a country doing this? Or is, are these like, indivi- like a it, separate, like a... It's, it's a, it's just a group. Okay. It's just a, yeah, they're just arms dealers, basically. Gotcha. So they're individual, um... Taking but they're advantage. clearly financed by they're financed by different probably different governments around the world is the assumption. Right. Okay. Yes. So they're like yeah. a business yeah. entity and yeah. so much better now. Yeah. Thank you. And they're getting their financing <laughs> from from governments around the world. Right. So, yeah. And so so that's why and 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 that's why many different nations are hunting down Nemo because he is disrupting their weapon supply chain. Right. So yeah. on it now. It's funny because you see this a lot in Star Wars too with the, what was that, Rogue, not Rogue One? Yes. It's the same thing that you're seeing all the arms dealers and the, the way that that same philosophy is story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and torturing so. the, you see the, like her dad is basically Nemo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in, in some ways, yes. Oh, I am your father. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! I mean, there's other tragic scenes where you, where one revival of yours always turns out to be a parent of yours. Well, you could kind of make a connection there to Anakin and Darth, though. I mean, there's okay. a crossover eventually, and he justifies arming um, the the Empire, creating the Empire, and arming it for peace and justice is. Is, is in his own mind, Anakin, as he's becoming Darth Vader, 
so you know just trying to control trying to trying to control civilization through basically an iron fist so i mean there is i mean i could see a similarity there fiona between nemo and darth vader absolutely go with it because these i mean these are these are like basic structures of stories Mm -hmm. that flow like they're the you know so we see the repetitive this because it's such a good idea and that's why it goes from story to story it, it really it works well and and the next like you know like george lucas okay he built on that then like maybe he read jules verne he's like oh my gosh yes and then like it became his story yeah and so he justified like darth vader is justifying what he's doing you know he's trying to prevent like you know his 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 the love of his life's death mm-hmm. um and trying to prevent future um trying to prevent future deaths and so he's going to do it through basically justifying his own killing yep so nemo's nemo's not too far off from that right and stuff so i can see how you'd make that connection it's lovely <laughs> well it's all because of you guys <laughs> well yeah we'll take it <laughs> we'll take it yeah Ned. So what's going on Ned? Okay, now Brian, what are we doing after this? So I have Ned discovers the coordinates of Nemo's secret island base, Volcania, and releases his, releases messages and bottles, hoping somebody will find them and free him from captivity. Because mm-hmm. yeah, he definitely wants to get out of there. Now there's a lot else that's going on too. We've got a seal, which is just the cutest thing in the whole wide world. The seal. Yes. I mean, wow. Oh my gosh. I I never I never I never knew you have something that replicates a dog. Yeah. (laughs) He definitely definitely is the dog for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. The dog of the sea. He is, and of course Ned and him become BFFs. (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) They like to sing together. Yeah, and also during this this scene, you're, um, is this also where we see, um, is where do they go out and we start seeing how they're eating? Because I know we have the dinner scene. Yeah, they have the dinner scene, and it's it's uh, it's soon after the dinner scene, um, and and the dinner scene is meant to be a little over the top. It's kind of like meant to, you know, uh, grow is, uh, have a gross factor to it that will interest kids oh yeah we're not seeking body parts and sushi so yeah think indiana jones temple of doom yeah <laughs> yep it's, it is quite on purpose yes yes it's quite nice. Not... i think it's fun oh it is yeah it's fun it's fun for kids i mean you know it's memorable it's like you know they're they're it's it's kind of like just that whole gross factor <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not as repulsive as the the food scene in Indiana Jones, though. No, this is true. It's a little. It's more kid friendly, <laughs> mm-hmm. especially the way that Ned reacts to things. It's definitely how an eight year old would react to that meal. Like, I'm not eating that. Um. Yeah. It's just. It, it was just born from all the green people of the sea. The green people. <laughs> The green people of the sea, that's fine. Yeah, so they're like, in, but in there, they're also talking about how they are able to feed themselves without really um, having to rely on any sort of um, agriculture, like uh, like you would think traditional, like cattle, mm-hmm. and, um, pork, and lamb, and all of that, um, along with, um, oh, 
milk and that sort of thing that you get from dairy cows and that sort of it's all replaced by things that they can farm out of the ocean yeah and i think yeah later when you we do see the same the scene where they're talking about their um agriculture under the sea and how they've set up uh, nets and kind of fields farm fields to collect things um i think this is where you see ned and um uh, conceal go out and they see a treasure chest and so there's like super excited. Oh my gosh, a treasure chest. Uh-huh. <laughs> so they're like trying to like go and get it and they get themselves in trouble, of course, you know, yep. trying to do that. Um, but, but I, I think that that probably is one of the, the funnier scenes. Cause I think that's more um, of like a, why a fairy tale or a tall tale or a wise tale of something being passed down. Oh, there's just treasure everywhere. Or, it's, <laughs> or yes. it's just like the word. And, and it's always surrounded by sharks. Yes. <laughs> yes. You never know that the worst part will ju- would just be ha- ha- happiness with just selling all, all the money from the treasure. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, Ned and, and Conceal aren't able to get the chest because the sharks, you know, sharks are scary. They have big pointy teeth. Mm. And, um, but, you know, Captain Nemo, like, pulls him aside and goes, oh, look at all this treasure we've collected. He opens up this cupboard and, you know, it's just piled high um, with gold coins and crowns and all sorts of trinkets in it. Um, I have no idea why there are crowns and, and scepters going they're, across the ocean. <laughs> they're using it as ballast. To yes. lay down the Nautilus is what they're, yeah. And and so anytime that there was some sort of uh, ship that was sunk, you know, they kind of, I think maybe initially were treasure hunters at one point, but possibly mm-hmm. I can't, I couldn't quite tell. You can't quite tell from this. It's yeah. a complete assumption. Um, but they had been collecting it and using it for ballast at least. And when, when they had risked their lives going after treasure... Um, Nemo's like, so, like, we've got, like, this whole room full of it. What, what's the big deal about, tre- like, men go after this, but it's really, that's not, treasure is not Nemo's motivation. He doesn't care. You can see from, they, they clearly want you to see that Nemo does not care about money. He's not doing what he's doing right now for monetary purposes. Right. I think there was at one point where they too were like caught up in that moment and he's trying to mm-hmm. tell Ned to get past that, that it really doesn't matter what, it, what matters is the independence that you have and the, the self sustainability, not needing anybody else to help you. Yeah. That there are, there are, there are more important things than, than treasure. Right. Right. And I just want to say Ned does not learn his lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, possibly a little bit. I'm not. He does. Oh, just some. He does uh, some. Maybe. But he's still like taking the jewel yeah. slowly yeah. out of the cupboard. Oh yeah, yeah. Through the whole <laughs> thing, I was just like, but like when that when that whole when the ship's going when the ship's going down uh-huh. and stuff, and he could go after the treasure. He doesn't go back. I know this is like big spoiler for <laughs> the whole movie, but he doesn't. He doesn't. So it's. In, I don't know. Maybe. I think maybe he grows. We'll get back to that. Yeah. Later. Yeah. Oh, or he just at this point clearly not. No, he is still very much all about the treasure, all about taking as much treasure as he can. Yeah. Okay, Fiona. And himself. Or oh, he just he just thinks oh, Captain Nemo just 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 needs a way of not being so poor. 
I, well, Captain Nemo's okay. He's doing okay. Yes. You gotta wonder where all that metal came from, though. You really gotta say. Uh. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. <laughs> like, how did he get all those parts? Those lovely, lovely parts. Mm-hmm. If, if any laboratory involves, if any laboratory involves a tech technology in the eight in the eight, 1800s, I guess they would know how to combine metal. Oh, they know how to to they know how to do metallurgy, like create metals and stuff. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they did uh, figure out some way to do metallurgy, and he had some definite top secret stuff back at his laboratory. And I think you'd find figure out how he did that. Right. Right. So is is this? Oh, oh yeah. Because it's like it's like the it's it's like. In the submarine ba- basement, when you never knew that it is actually a whaling ship. It's a whaling ship. Wait, say that again. <laughs> it, it's like oh, we dove, we dove, dove to the submarine basement. Oh, where they show the engine? Or no, are you talking about something? The ship, the ship that was before the Nautilus. Oh, that they were. Oh. Okay, gotcha. So, uh, but thinking about going down to the ship, Fiona, do you remember the engine room? Barely. Barely? Okay. Because they go down in there and they show, because Nemo wants to show the professor how the ship is powered. And basically, it kind of seems like it's some form of nuclear energy. They've discovered the power of the atom here is what it, what it's implied. Like Before, nuclear energy was really a thing. Like beta right. gas. Beta gas? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. An untapped, an untapped supply of energy mm-hmm. stuff, and so it kind of implies like almost nuclear power before any of that was ever even thought of. Right. It's kind of this like magical turbines and um, yeah power being uh, produced, but there's not really an explanation why it is. Yeah, it's an unlimited power source kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So. With no protection from anything, just, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that was the part I'm like, is that supposed to be nuclear? Because I'm pretty sure they're not doing anything safe here. <laughs> well. One, two, three. <laughs> it's made up nuclear. <laughs> right. Yeah. They'll learn later. It's fun. It's fun. It's a fun little um, fiction part of it, though. Yeah. I'm showing how it's powered. Jumping ahead a little bit, um, so I thought this was interesting. So when they go to off the coast of New Guinea, and mm-hmm. they get stuck stranded on a reef, um, and okay, so this is once again where we should have had the captions on. <laughs> okay, so I know Ned goes ashore, but they don't want him to really go ashore because they think that he's going to try to leave but then you know he he's informed that it's all cannibals living on the island i don't think he really believes them uh, is that this, what's going on? this is like the part where <laughs> yeah that's what's going on where that mm-hmm. was like oh this is where they got ideas for the jungle cruise oh chihuahuas <laughs> yeah because they do have headhunters on the on the jungle mm-hmm. cruise so you see um so Ned's surprised when Nemo allows him to go ashore with Conceal um, and to collect specimens because that is part of, I think, of what they're really interested in is, is 
do figuring out the ecology of the sea and the areas and learning about all the different lives that are out there. I mean, we still today don't even know of everything that's out there. We have so much more to learn. It's insane. Um, yeah. But you're kind of getting like a basic beginning and seeing how these ecosystems evolved and how we got where we are. And so, you know, Ned goes ahead and he's um, exploring well, Ned's, avenues to escape. Ned's clearly want, Ned wants to escape. Oh, yeah. Ned's clearly wants to escape. He's just, he's, he doesn't care what Nemo says. No. Nemo's like, Nemo kind of doesn't really, he's not like fully trusting him, but he's like, okay, it, it's, it, it's, <laughs> these are your mistakes to make. Like, and he's giving right. him the leeway and the freedom to make those, to make mistakes. And whereas, um, oh, what, uh, what, what, what's the sidekick's name? Conceal. Conceal. Yeah. Uh, Igor. Uh, he's, he's not, he's not going, he's not going to go with Ned. He's a, no. you know, he's like, he needs to stay with the professor. And so he goes back to collect s specimens to take back to the ship and Ned wander. Ned just goes off. Like he's going to try and try and run away. I think Ned's a little bit uh, optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. mm -hmm. Ned just thinks Nemo's lying. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, um, he's not. you know, as he want, he wanders into the jungle and do you remember what he finds? Nemo back in the jungle. Uh, do you remember uh, what he finds? Oh, obviously the human skulls on the sticks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so Nemo's not lying. <laughs> and, and quickly, you know, encounters. No pool to drink out of. Yeah quickly encounters some of the cannibals and is running back to the ship very fast. Run for your life! Yes, this is the run for your life scene for sure. Mm -hmm. He's like, get on your canoes from the cannibals. Yeah, yeah so I always I always think it's interesting. So they're, they really want to get rid of Ned. <laughs> He's on this island. Holy mackerel. <laughs> Don't you trespass on this island. <laughs> or, just, or just come up become a member of us oh well maybe dinner <laughs> yeah. so yeah so ned like gets back to the boat and uh, gets on the on the ship and he's uh, wondering why nemo's not very concerned about what's happening outside and he's not and we find out pretty quickly why nemo's not really upset but very furious with ned for causing this chaos yeah and and here's here's the part where they met with the camels God. You know, in in modern films, when you're when you meet uh, oh people who don't speak English, you try to speak their their language yourself. But instead of that, in this movie, they just can't for for like anything anything they had, like maybe rocks. Was what was what was Ned throwing? I know that they oh. were throwing spears at him. Yeah, it was a spear yeah. or or I don't know if it's like a scuba air tank. Probably not. <laughs> Ned was throwing that, or the cannibals were throwing that? Well, well, I mean, cannibals are always throwing spears. They're throwing the spears, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, don't come on their island. <clears throat> did you have Did you have anything, did you have what they throwed in mind? Um, well, I, I just remember the spears, and they get on the ship, and they're kind of curious as to what they're on, because I don't think they really, the, the, the um, native, tribe doesn't realize what they've stepped onto. Well, <laughs> they're yeah. They'd be in the, they're in the same boat as Ned. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. They're like trying to figure out, what is this metal object? Why is there... <laughs> this is quite odd. Oh, Nemo's like, okay, get rid of them. We can't handle them anymore. 
Yeah, so apparently the whole submarine has an electrical charge field. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yep. And, he push, and Nemo pushes the button and it shocks everyone. And, um, you know, obviously painful, but not to, um, to, to kill them. Doesn't appear to be a life threatening. Yeah, yeah just to get them annoyed and off, like, go away kind of a thing. Like, yeah. they, it's like being stung by a bee, like, you leave. I mean, clearly, clearly Captain Nemo could have done all of them in, but he doesn't. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because you know, he's like, they're, 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 they're pretty much a harmless tribe. And we, like, we, it, I think this is another interesting thing, point of view from Jules Verne's perspective is like, we invaded their territory. They have every right to be mad at us. Yeah. And I think <laughs> and they have every yeah. right to come after us. And they have every right to try and kill us. Right. <laughs> Which I think that's like, that is a very interesting perspective. You know, that's a, that's a really, healthy perspective you know especially for the 1800s to take yeah uh, but know, when imperialism was and, and when imperialism was really a, a, a big thing and you had a lot of different nations like france and great britain going and conquering different areas mm-hmm. um, and stuff so it's kind of like a he's kind of giving his own jules verne's giving his perspective on what he thinks about that yep he thinks men should be free Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, how about the time when a bee kept flowing, flowing around my 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 space at, at Six Flags, and I, I I I I kept and I kept slapping it, to, so it'll be a gone red, and then oh, never mind, I got stinged. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh jeepers! Oh, that would not be a fun ride. <laughs> oh boy! Oh, did you just like? Are you making a Disney ride around this? Is that what was going on? Did I said I Six right? Flags. Dude, she was at Six Flags. Oh, Six Flags. Oh, so you got stung flags, by a bee? Yes. On a ride or just... No, oh, when just I was waiting us. for food. Oh, waiting for food. Oh, Lord. Oh, okay. I gotcha. Okay, that makes... Sorry, I misheard. Yep. Okay. We'll get you the closed okay. captions, Ryan. I'm so sorry. I miss. I was like, I thought we were on a. I think I thought you were making an attraction. Where you get stung by me. Where you get stung by the attraction. Nope. Me young. This this actually happened to me. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I think all my kids at one point got stung by a bee. It just happens, you know. Yeah, I have too. Yeah, and a wasp. Not fun. No, it's not. So they get themselves out of the out of the reef. And um, then we have a warship approaches and it fi- it's firing upon the submarine. It descends into the depths where it attracts the attention of a giant squid. And here comes the recognizable part. Yes, the famous, famous squid scene where the electric charge fails to repel it. This, I got to tell you, is the toughest squid out there. This guy. It is a tough squid. It was mm, determined. Now, it the ship did hit the Nautilus, and the Nautilus was taking on water as yes. it's descending. And it's, you know, it's descending to a depth that it's never descended before to. Right. And um, as it's taking on water, it kind of, it, the, the power system fails, but Nemo saves, kind of comes in and say, helps helps get the power system back on. And clearly some of his men have died. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get that back on and are able to try and start getting back to the surface again. And Ned has been in prison for, you know, <laughs> he's for doing what he did. He's disobeying and going ashore and angering the natives. So he's locked away. With the seal. Is and he with the seal? 
I don't, I don't recall if he was with the seal, but I know he's locked in a room. And so they're going up and um, they're trying to get rid of the squid. The squid um, comes and attacks the ship and they shock it, but it overloads the system and kind of fries the electrical system. And um, so they're, they have to go all the way to the surface and try and get the squid off at the surface, at the ocean surface. And there happens to be a storm. Yes. Of course. Yes, of course. But that's like yeah. a, you know, that's on purpose. Because of the hurricanes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so as they're trying to fight the squid off, um, Ned's trying to break out and he ends up breaking out of his, uh, luckily breaking out of his prison cell, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And starts helping with the fight and you know i don't think he at first he realized that they were under attack by a giant squid but no. he figures it out pretty quickly <laughs> it's not it's pretty obvious when there's tentacles coming into the ship and so he gets out there and the and nemo gets uh captured or like gets ensnared by the mm-hmm. um by one of the tentacles and um ned ends up going after him and saving saving the captain Yes. Well, I, I think Ned's the only one on this submarine that knows what to do in that situation. There are yeah. no other um, harpoonists on that boat, for sure. Like, none of them have yeah. experienced this issue before. Under, under harsh conditions, too. And clearly, Ned has. You you can tell Ned has seen some harsh sea conditions. Right. And probably while he was whaling and um, uh, knows how to just realistically knows how to take out a big organism mm-hmm. and stuff. And, and so he can fight off the squid and does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Almost single-handedly yeah, fights off much. the giant squid. Nobody yeah. else knew what they were doing. By golly. Yeah, he can't be with a sword. And he is the one guy to go save Nemo too. Mm-hmm. He does. Jumps into the ocean, saves Nemo. And so then Nemo is obliged to keep Ned alive. So then they have to return to Volcania for repairs. All right, Volcania. And Volcania is beautifully um, created by Peter Ellenshaw. So mm. this is not a real island. Nope. And uh, this is this this part just absolutely gets me. I just think it's the most hilarious thing ever. Told. So apparently, if you send a message in a bottle, people will get it. <laughs> that's, that's the lesson learned. Well, you know, ask the rescuers. Yeah. It's oh, very yeah. I was, I was hoping. I was, I was thinking about mentioning that. Yeah. That's how they find out about Penny. So <laughs> just, just called risk, 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 the rescue aids society. Yep. There you go. Because when they get there, there are warships and marines and everyone kind of surrounding the island and the and the professor also by this point had convinced nemo to share his secrets with the professor so that the professor could share them with the world okay but then this happens and all these warships have shown up and nemo definitely changes his mind and not he's like we have we need to go basically we're going to go there and then he's going to blow up the entire island. There's some sort of detonation device that he's going to set. Right. We're now going into, he's, he's completely changed. We're going to go in and, and blow it all up. Right. And even put an end to the submarine too. And spoiler yeah. alert, Nemo. Nemo. We, they found Nemo. No, no, <laughs> no, he got killed. Oh yes. Okay. Yeah. We're coming to that part. Yes. So they navigate into Volcania and go, go set the detonation device. Mm-hmm. And, 
on the way out that he, Nemo gets shot mm-hmm. um, as he's trying to get back out, back into the submarine. And it's a fatal wound. It's clearly a fatal wound. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Everybody knows that this means, you know, if, if Nemo's dying, everybody knows that they're going to go down down with the captain and down with the ship. This is already, this. you can clearly tell this has already been discussed amongst the crew. The crew's willing to accept this. They, they knew what they had signed on for. The only person that is not accepting it at this point is Ned. <laughs> And Ned is definitely not. I'm not. I did not sign up to no. go down with the ship. <laughs> this man would never sign down, up to go. He would not be captain because he's never going down with a ship. Nope, nope. He would not be. He is not. He's definitely not a. He's, he's not. He he for sure. You can tell he's not a captain. But he does value um, the professor and the professor's sidekick, and is going to save them. He doesn't really think that they've signed on to this either. Right. You know they started with him and and they he knows that they're valuable people and he appreciates i mean they would save him and he will save them and i think ned is like also he does not subscribe to groupthink mentality mm-hmm. um he's very independent in terms of his thinking and and that even and that comes out as you know he at times he seems to think of himself first but it's not always, that's not, that's not all. Ned's more of a great character because he jumps in and saves Nemo. Right. Uh, and risks his own life to save Nemo. And then um, at this point he could go, be going after treasure, but he doesn't. He goes after, gets the professor and is trying to save the professor and saves the professor from himself because the professor goes back and is trying to get his journal. Right. And Ned knocks him out so that he can get it, save his life. It's just everything before the big bomb. And I was guessing yeah, this is, it's like a person with mm-hmm. autism wouldn't would know how, how to control a boat, a boat or learn how to encounter someone if if I be Ned. If you were Ned? Yeah. Yeah. You'd have problems mm-hmm. like knowing how to handle a situation? Or... Uh, totally. Yeah. Oh, I think a lot of people would. And Ned seems, Ned just kind of is reacting to his, his own moral compass and instincts at this point. He's just trying to save his life and save the life of his friends because they are his friends at this point right right and 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 ned would save every person on the boat if they would let him right because even like the guy that was trying to uh knock out ned possibly kill ned right and the second in command person it seemed like the first mate um um, Ned doesn't let him drown. He sets him up. He doesn't just drown him. He right. knocks him out and then doesn't let him just slump over in the water. He like physically pulls him up out of the water, sets him up. So if he wants, you know, if he, he has also has a fighting chance if he so chooses to get off the ship. Right. He, he really, I think he values human life more than mm-hmm. um, the, the, obviously a sea creature or an, any of the elements that are involved. I, he's not yep. a, he's not a war guy at all. He does not seem to be. No. Mm-mm. Like he'll do his little individual fights and he'll you know his little battles, but I don't like he'll start it, but they're kind of just like I got to get some energy out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. It's yeah, it's it's like okay, I need to have this like little brawl. And I don't really take it seriously. It's just kind of fun for me. But I would never intentionally, like, I know where the line is. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to cross it. And you see that, like, when he first is with um, the professor's sidekick, um, he punches him. Mm-hmm. He punches the sidekick, you know, uh, because he was spying on Ned. 
yeah. then Ned, Ned, Ned is like, hey, we're friends. You can punch me back wherever and stuff. And so, <laughs> so the psychic does. And from that point forward, they're best friends. I mean, and that kind of is, you know, sort of a boyish relationship in a way. Right. You know, that happens yeah. a lot, you know, and then you move on, you know, it's just kind of. All right. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got our we've got our punches in, and now we're friends. We're good. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go good. get some treasure. <laughs> it's like it's my turn to apologize. Yeah. So, get out of the ship, and they they're um, they witness volcano destroyed an explosion. A massive explosion. Yes. Oh Lord, it's gone. Sorry. There's any. Yeah, and probably the, all the fleet around it too. I mean, it was yeah. a massive. Yeah, it clearly was it's to intense. destroy everything in the vicinity. Right. No one's going back with that information. Nope. <laughs> or even where they went. Oh, Ned apologizes to Aranix for hitting him. Hey, I was right. <laughs> yeah, he was right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Nautilus disappears beneath the waves. Nemo uh, disappears. And the professor, the professor is like, you probably did humanity a, a favor. So the professor kind of comes around and sees... In a way, he's he's not so idealistic anymore. He sees like you know what the humans capable of in in terms of invading Volcania, right? And trying to 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 and clearly come in and take and weaponize whatever is there, whatever discoveries they can make. Right, and it's really um, there. There isn't a point to anybody. Like it doesn't say it's this country or this entity or these people. No. It just is kind of like a, a group of warriors of, yeah. of uh, modern um, uh, European people, for sure. Well, that's what it seems like. Yes. Yeah, that's what you see. And the warships. Yeah. So, and that's that's and, kind of our movie. But it recalls for Nemo's last, last words, but the wind sail by. I just said that. I just said that line right there. There, there is hope for the future, and when the world is ready for a new and better life, all this will someday come to pass in God's good time and will. <laughs> and our closing music. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, you just you just left uh, uh, Ned and the professor. Or maybe the assistant alone on the boat in the ocean. Yeah, we hope they find someone. Someone comes and saves them. Yeah, it seems like somebody's coming to save them. I mean, that that seems to be the what you're. So with that quote, what did what did you think of that quote, Fiona? I think it's just uh, oh, it's now that our time to be done. Uh, uh, like event, uh, adventuring the the fierce points of the sea. Oh, they're done. They're done with the sea for a while. I guess. Okay. Or, or, or maybe no. Oh, oh, oh. Well, will there someday be a point of us living there in the sea in the future? <laughs> I got a little funny right there. Kind of rediscovering the technology. It could be. Okay. I think we're getting closer to this point. <laughs> Where it's just like, oh, it's, it just feels like as more winds pass by. Quote. It's hard to say if we'll ever be there. There's a lot of people that want peace, and it does take time. Mm, take some, definitely take some men like the professor and Ned and mm-hmm. everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's an important thing from Jules Verne. It takes people from all different backgrounds. Oh, oh, it's that line from from the past un, until Ned and his other crew die. Ned and the crew die. Until. Oh, until. <laughs> well, you definitely this movie and this book definitely explore some 
interesting topics and subjects. It does. Yeah, there's definitely a lot going on in, in a Jules Verne book, more than just what's on the surface. So would you guys go back and watch this movie again? We could. We could. Yes, <laughs> the ending, oh, I would just, uh, oh, it almost felt, felt like it was, it was Mary Poppins artwork all over again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, especially with Peter Ellenshaw and his map paintings there. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think now, like really researching and going back and looking through the book and the talent that went into this, um, I definitely want to go back and watch it with closed captions <laughs> and um, mm -hmm. really just enjoy the visuals much more. Because the first time you're kind of like trying to grab the story and who the characters are and how they're all working together. But it's good to always go back, I think, and, and see a movie a second time and really appreciate the beauty of a movie in its whole. I would be really embarrassed to tell you how many times I've watched this film. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've probably watched this, yeah, somewhere in the net, in that neighborhood at some point, yeah. Um, I've watched over the years quite a few times, but it, I think it's one of those films you can really go back, and it's it has such a great storyline, but it also has really good cinematography. It has really good sets, really good art direction, really good special effects, and you can just kind of watch. I mean, you can you can watch it over and over again it has a lot of repeatability to it and you catch different things when you watch it over and over again so i think you're right i'm going back and watching and just kind of looking at the art of it is a really good thing to do yeah i definitely want to do that for sure and take another look and taking harper goth sets i mean just looking at oh. all the details and it's inside insane. of those sets yeah i mean it's they're it's highly detailed yeah, so much more than you think it's going to be. Uh, you 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 go in and you're like, holy cow. It truly is like everything and it's all organized and it's ornate and everything uh, works together and it's beautiful and like every tiny little rivet and every tiny, you know, all the metals working together, all the fabrics working together. It's intense. There's just so much there. And then the music... Ha mm -hmm. has a life of its own and that you know, it's almost its own character the nautilus itself the ship is its own character and there's it's you know you don't see too many films where the ship or the the vehicle that you're on is is a character inside of the story in a way the set of the nautilus was at disneyland for quite a few years Mm -hmm. And you could walk through it, which I think is spectacular. I mean, we were too, we're too young <laughs> to, to have seen it. <laughs> Yay! Our dads aren't, but we are, but yeah. Are. Yeah, no, I definitely need to talk. This is something I need to talk to my dad about. Maybe we'll even do like a little interview with him. Because I know this is one of those experiences that he really enjoyed at Disneyland and going back and seeing. Oh, I bet. I mean, you know, being able to go and see a set from one of the most popular films of that time. Mm -hmm. That would be, and, and, and walk through it, that, that would be amazing. Yeah, and it was in Tomorrowland, fifth-ish. It's close, it's close you're gonna, I mean, it, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a retro vision of the future. Yep. Mm -hmm. Which they applied to Disneyland Paris. Mm -hmm. They did like a Jules Verne fantasy Tomorrowland. Right. Because their Space Mountain is, is like, basically rocket to the moon yeah 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 okay so now i need to go to paris and do that because that's 
fascinating to me because we have like an ultra, mm -hmm. I don't, but it's like, <laughs> to me, it'll always be the 1980s space. Our, our space mountain, no matter how yeah. they change it or how they, they do things, it'll always be the 1980s for me. Um, mm -hmm. I love the intro of the space mountain in Disneyland, uh, Tomorrowland, but it's just so fascinating to me because I think it like jets more in Paris where ours is kind of like a slow progression up and then a drop. There's, yes, there is, it's a, what is it, electromagnetics mm -hmm. launch? It's, a little, it's an electromagnetic launching system, similar to a rock and roller coaster. Right, right, and that's much more of a modern day roller coaster than our Space mm -hmm. Mountain, and that's why it'll always be the 1980s for me. Yeah, whereas this is a traditional one and you kind of make your way up the hill in a traditional roller coaster kind of fashion, but with a lot more lights and music and sound. <laughs> no, um, yeah, uh, this, I mean, this movie inspired a lot of different uh, attractions around the world for Disney. Right, well, Jules Verne did, for sure. Yeah, Jules Verne and, and then the, then Disney replicated it, you know, with the film. So you like, it, it was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea submarine ride mm -hmm. there at the Magic Kingdom. And they also had a version, some, some a version, a submarine ride at um, Disneyland, but it was specifically 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea at Magic Kingdom. They had the Nautilus in Disneyland Paris as a walkthrough, okay. so you can still go do that. And then when they did Disney Sea, they have Volcania there. And um, they also have a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea attraction, as well as a Journey to the Center of the Earth attraction, also Jules Verne. I think I just need to like be there now yes we need to go let's yes now to tokyo here we go <laughs> it's just i like it now i'm pretty sure when when little ones see the volcanoes they'll be like volcania? oh oh was was vol volcania based on a real volcano there you go there you go <laughs> it did turn into one Woo! It, yeah they built it and it does erupt there in tokyo it's like on the bucket list for us <laughs> of course it is We'll just keep going with our bucket list. Yeah. All right. So before we go, real quick though, we have sea to stars. Give our, yeah, we have to do our mouse, our Mickey Mouse ears. You want to do sea star, sea stars ears, sea star ears. I don't know how that will work. I don't either. All right, Fiona, how many sea star Mickey Mouse ears do you want to give it? Maybe a a, a free or 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 four. You want to do three and a half? Yeah. Okay. Because I guess there were some parts that didn't trigger trigger me that that much, and I guess it's it'll be a hard focus on on studying uh, aqua 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 science. Okay, so three but, and a half for but, you. But I, but I mean I I remember some quote quotes from YouTuber Brian Brian Hall. Well, a little off topic. That oh, Atlantis the Lost Emperor looked like a a interpretation of a of a undersea live action movie, which apparently it said it had that same language the design. Oh, so the Atlantis The Lost Empire, a 2001 Disney animated film that would share much of the same design language as 2000 Leagues Under yeah, the Sea. So I, right. Yeah, I guess it was, it's also near a time period crew that's trying to get some treasure. Sadly, I'm not wearing my Atlantis shirt today as I was lazy today. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> It happens. It happens to all of us. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that. I think they did take a lot. The the designers on Atlantis took a lot from Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. 
and a lot of design elements. Well, they're probably big fans of it and wanted wanted to really celebrate it and bring it forth. I, I like that one. I'm glad you brought that up. I like that film too, Atlantis. Right. Yeah, and also, I guess also that keeping in mind here of of me keep what trying to keep watching see movies mm-hmm. how funny because mm-hmm. oh, a couple of days ago we just watched the the Popeye the Sailor Man oh, live geez. action film oh, it's appropriate because Dis- Disney did I think her, I think that's a stretch Dis- Disney did partner up doing the film well yeah Disney did um they were like the distribution and helped produce it that Popeye movie I mean, yes, it's got, That's there's awesome. secretly a, a sea monster. Oh, there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a. <laughs> it's, it's very cartoony, animatronic. Talk about closed oh, captions. I cannot understand half of what Robin Williams is saying in that movie. Like, what? <laughs> That's all, folks. <laughs> yeah, and we did, and we did find treasure, and we just ended with them in the middle of an island on sea. There you go. Middle of Island is everyone's still still stuck at the island. <laughs> so what's your next what's your next sea adventure film? It's gotta be I think I'm gonna go back to anything educational. <laughs> like there's gotta be a bunch of National Geographic. Oh, there you go. I would say so. Probably a little bit closer to your aquatic science than Popeye. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Popeye is just it, it it's it just never shows that much. It's just anything that that, that plays that that's trying to keep anything unknown fun. Oh boy, it's something else. Yeah, Nat Geo will have some good stuff for you. So um, go with go with Nat Geo. All right, Ryan. How many Sea Star Mouse, Mickey Mouse ears are you going to give? Um, Twenty thousand leagues. Oh, this one gets five. Like, <laughs> if I could give if I could give six, I would. <laughs> Maybe I'm not yet Love there. It. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a this is like a not to be missed for a Disney fan. Any Disney fan needs to see this film. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I would give it, I would definitely give it four, just for the aspect of, um, and I, I think we talk about a lot about this. Like, you have to understand where this comes this comes from. Like, where we got now from we got here because of there, and I just watching the special effects that they developed for this is incredible and thinking there's some so there's so many bad movies in the 1960s with special about effects about aqua about, or... about everything but just mm-hmm. really appreciating the technology that they knew how to use in these situations back then and realizing how good movies could be if they really put effort into it and i think if you really put effort and story and put all these elements together, how great a movie can be. Uh, I think it's a lesson that all these filmmakers need to take moving forward. Absolutely. So definitely watch this movie so you understand so much more about how we got where we are. And fun fact, hard help. Fun fact. Hard head. Help helmet, helmet diving from the, Eng- from the English men. Not good for researching. Oh, <laughs> okay. So she's giving us another fun little aqua science tidbit. Uh, self-contained diving, which we see in the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. The first uh, hard, hel- hel- hard hat helmet uh, was developed by an Englishman named Augustus Sieb in 1840. Uh, it was good for underwater labor, not good for research. Heavy and required a support team and vessel. Oh, yeah. And I was like with that part. Oh, 
Oh, let let's 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 go like the the BBC turtle first because that that's a more most nature documentaries were like we mm -hmm. kill the babies first. I like how you made some of those connections, like with the aqua science and and exploring. You know, like taking because that because I think that's what Jules Verne in the film or in his, this book, not film, in this book was trying to his book was trying to do was trying to further exploration of the sea. So I think. You hit it right, the nail right on the head, Fiona, with making a connection to the different technology and discoveries that were made to exploring the sea. Mm, absolutely. Great connection. High five. Is there anything you want to say, Ryan? <laughs> oh, what, for the uh, for the film or was that uh, it? Oh, you know, I think I, I just like hearing you talk about it and make different connections, Fiona. Um, I also think you also said something about um, true life. Um, adventures and um, and the um, oh the jungle cruise there and I think that all kind of plays into this because true life adventure films were going at this point and I think he kind of Walt takes and merges like some of the true life adventure with a fantasy film and you can see that with some of the underwater scenes and some of the first underwater scenes in a movie and in, in movies that you end up seeing some really high grade color film underwater film i think it's an interesting blend of movies that walt's putting together here yeah i really like that connection i was i was just thought hey the, your connection made me think your turn mom oh oh i'm done <laughs> i thought you i didn't i didn't i didn't need the grade out oh oh i yeah four i said four. Oh, four. because I, I went into because people need to do the technology blah 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 Speaking of technology, <laughs> I think I just saw rumors that yada yada yada. I think I just saw rumors that they're that they're playing to trying to remake this film. They shouldn't. That's just a bad idea. Well, oh, I don't. Oh, that would be hard. Take a look on Wikipedia. Oh, there no. There's just some things they shouldn't redo, like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Just don't. <laughs> they don't might do be it. trying to reboot this film. They might. Who knows? Who knows? We'll see. Time will tell. I think this would be a hard one to redo, but, you know? But I think everyone around there is just a bah humbug of, of trying it as the original was so good. For sure. Well, I mean, unless you do it, like, up here, don't do it at all. <laughs> they set a high bar, so... <laughs> all right, we good? Yeah. All right. on another episode of Diz Podopolis. I sure hope you enjoyed our conversation about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and everything that could ever be related to that movie because that's what we do on Diz Podopolis. <laughs> Jeepers, yes. I think it's all my idea. <laughs> oh, that's why we love you, uh, thank you for yeah, thanking, Thank you for hanging in there with us all. <laughs> and if you have any other ideas of how this movie can relate to any other movie that we did not mention, please let us know and send us an email at oh, comments at oh, dispodopolis.com. This could be easy. You could just mention you could just mention Mulan, where for instance, all this all all this oh, film is just all this film is just males and an an animation class. I I mentioned I mentioned uh. that Mulan is the one that always that always hides herself. Uh huh. And, and beats the joint the other males. 
Yes, yes. And I, okay, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but I will for five seconds. Yes, women did dress up as men to fight in battles all over the world, not just China. <laughs> Absolutely documented. True, and, and True. As, as marine biologies for female. There are lots of female marine biologists. That's true. That is true. That's uh, another truism. Don't want them for Twin Lakes under the sea. Yes. Well, it's a different time, right? It's a different time. Absolutely. Yeah. Were there women at sea during this time? Absolutely. That traveled with men? Yes. They're usually related, but yes. All right. All right, Fiona. Why don't you say goodnight to everybody out there? Okay, go into schoology. All right, I'm there. Um, what do you need? I want to say good, good night, good night to Miss Miss Heist. Miss Heist, my 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 aqua my aqua science teacher. Yeah, she's very nice. And until tomorrow. Until tomorrow, absolutely. And you can reach Fiona at Toad Girl on Instagram and on Twitter. And if she needs more information from me, I have the <laughs> I nerd. Naturalist. Naturalist? Naturalist. Uh-huh. Where from Corpus Crispy, we were just there. Uh Bahivan. It's possible that Bivalves. That Bivalves. Bivalves mm-hmm. are, Those are like clams. Are our little clams or or maybe white white ched- cheddar licking sticks. Oh, some some of the seaweed. Yes. Yeah. So it's really cool on um Oh, this is this this is great for everybody. So it's really cool. There's this app called iNaturalist. And so it's a lot of people out in nature kind of taking pictures and it will scan uh, it's kind of its database of images to kind of match up what you're seeing and it will mark your location and so people will know that that bird or that creature or animal or species is there. So it's really kind of cool. So we did it in our front yard, and we did it when we were down in Corpus Christi at the beach. It's really, really cool. It's a cool thing. And it's possible that, that these seagulls could be laughing gulls. Laughing gulls, yeah. It was the best it gets. It doesn't refresh like anything, anything from, from the world of ecosystem. Right, right. So you need to kind of uh, really get close to the specimen when you're taking a picture. So the closer you get, the more information it can pull up for you. And possible sargassum, sargassic seaweed, mm-hmm. which totally looks like a big lasagna. <laughs> oh yep, there's lots of pictures of it. All right, cool. All and, right, are we good? Uh, One more. And and we all know, and we all know this could be a muscle. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, you gotta be really really careful with your pictures because you never know what they are. Absolutely. Okay, Ryan, why don't you say goodnight to everybody out there? Well, um, goodnight to everybody. I have really enjoyed this episode. I really love hearing all the connections <laughs> that you're making to nature, Fiona, because, I mean, that really is the whole point of Jules Verne writing, uh-huh. or one of the main points of Jules Verne writing this book. Um, so get out, explore. Um, and so that's, that's spectacular. And maybe... Maybe more people will use the, the what is it, iNature? iNaturalist. iNaturalist. I'm going to have to go look that up. iNaturalist. Cool. That sounds like, that sounds like fun, mm-hmm. actually. So, um, 
Thank you to everybody for listening to us. Uh, I, we appreciate your time. And then also want to say goodnight to my mom and Aunt Dolores. And then you can find me on Twitter at RyanFlint underscore EDU. All right. And I'd like to say goodnight to my mom and Aunt Lynette. And um, have a, a great day. And, you know, go out there and figure out what is outside your house. Um, we're kind of really spoiled where we live because we live on the edge of a Texas state park. So we get lots of crazy, crazy things. We had a porcupine living in our tree for a while, so that was super awesome. <laughs> I was, I was like, is is that literally a thing? Uh huh. Is it? Oh, oh, these days, are you still sleeping, porcupine? Yes, they are nocturnal, so they sleep during the day. <laughs> and uh, so, just really, we get lots of fun stuff out here for sure. It, it, that porcupine just ended up having a crowd around our tree, did it? Oh, well, well, not too terrible. We're not sure. <laughs> it was an older porcupine, so it's kind of like when we don't see him, we're not sure if he's going to make it the next day. It was definitely an older guy out there. Um, so you can reach me on Tink Scout on Instagram and um, on Twitter for sure. And you can see Dispodopolis, D-I-S-P-O-D-O-P-O-L-I-S is um, on Twitter and um, Instagram. And we have a website out there where I do a blog for each of our episodes. And we are explaining, we all know, and we we can always have a theme for each episode. I, oh, okay. And this was definitely the aquatic science theme. And I, will, I can also say goodnight to Elias of what he knows, what, what, what his smart choices are for Disney+. Plus. Oh. <laughs> 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 yeah, he was watching. Um, what was he watching? Endgame. Endgame right tonight. Now. So there you go. That was three hours of his life. Ned, Ned dreams of running away. It was so so t- tough. It's tough. They gotta hold on to what they got. It doesn't make a difference if they make it or not. Not. But, 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 oh, they're halfway there. Oh, cracking on a chair. <laughs> oh, we're a cracking uh, team. Um, crack, crackers, crack. Uh-huh. All right, everyone, stay safe and um, have fun with your families, and we'll see you real soon. And think, and think about what's good for boredom. Now it's time for a trip around the park and a kiss goodnight.
kindergarten class when you do that. Okay, let's do our clap. <laughs> so That's the educator in me, I guess. It is. <laughs> it's awesome. All right. Around the world uh, in 80 days starring... My dad's calling me. Oh, okay. That's we'll go see what dad's It's so okay. tiny. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Looks good. He is. Okay, go see dad. Go see... He's, she's coming! Jackie Chan! <laughs> there you go, you got it, finished. You finished that sentence. That's really funny. That's my life in a nutshell. Dear God. That's really funny, right? Oh my gosh, I'll be sitting there helping with my kids with homework and the other one's tagging on my shoulder. Mom, 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 emergency, mom, mom. I'm like, Seriously? Mike, time to go back to school. We're just risking it. <laughs> <laughs> I promise myself to not hate school. Yeah. Dispodopolis is a EFA Solutions production. All music and interviews remain the copyright of their respectful owners and are being used under the Creative Commons license law. All other content remains the copyright of EFA Solutions, LLC. This broadcast is not affiliated with Disney or any of the Disney properties, and the opinions expressed in this broadcast belong to the hosts and guests.